Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home, and then there's a version of it where you have someone help you, you watch them do it the right way, and you go, thank God I didn't try to do that myself. I have fully done things around the home that I think look good, and then a bang in the night, and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like it, I've, I've seen it all go south. I own a home, and I can tell you... I know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, you can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings, but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com. Knockback is brought to you by, well, you. If you want to learn how to support our show, go to CollinsLastStand.com. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined as always by my brother. He's haunting the Arctic. Dagan Moriarty, Dagan. <laughs> I really am. I should say the Antarctic because it's really not the, the Arctic. Antarctic. The Antarctic. That's cool. We're weird and pissed off. Yeah, you're pissed <laughs> off. You're weird. You've been you've been trapped away for a quite what seemingly at least a hundred thousand years. Absolutely. So you have a lot. You have a lot of things to do. You have errands to run. <laughs> <laughs> imagine all the errands that a bear has to run when he wakes up. I really can't. I can't even imagine. It's got to do all sorts. I mean, it's got when you imagine being a bear, you're sleeping in a cave for months and then you suddenly are, awoke, you know, the, the cycle of nature wakes you up or whatever. And you have no idea what the hell has happened Isn't for like strange? the past four or five months. It's pretty interesting. I've, what did I hear? I just recently heard about an animal. Now I can't think of for the life of me what it is, but it actually hibernates technically. Maybe it's called something else, but it actually stays awake the entire time. And just stay and just sits there. It doesn't eat. It doesn't. It it barely breathes. It doesn't drink. Obviously, it just sits there for like however long hibernation is. What three or four months or whatever it is. I what was it? Was it some kind of snake? It was like really. It was really uh, disturbing. Actually, <laughs> I was like, what kind of creature could do that? It just sits it just there. stays. It just waits. Just waits. <laughs> <laughs> I always feel like an animal's life is pretty boring when you think about it. I mean, I'm sure it's very exciting to not that they would look at it this way, but very exciting to stalk around the, the woods or whatever. And you're eating and you're getting eaten. It's a very exciting situation, but I feel like there's a lot of downtime. A lot of downtime. What, what do you do? For sure. What is a bird doing all, all day? Really? I don't know. Just just like being a pain in the neck, chirping. Yeah, just flying around, squawking. You know what it is? Jesus. They're trying not to get they're trying not to get devoured. That's pro- that's actually it's it's nerve-wracking, but it is I think you could argue that it's pretty exciting. It's pretty exciting. Yeah. Life. Sure. You know. That's a good point. That's a fair point. We can't you change we my can't mind. Can, we can, yeah, we can't we can't relate to that. Really? No. 
No, as apex predators, we certainly can't, although our ancestors certainly could. And I even think about that, like when we became apex predators, like there was hundred, there were with our, you know, our most common ancestors, hundreds of thousands of years between technological advancements, like the harnessing of fire and flint tools, whatever they were using. And then just all of this time passed where nothing, no one adapted anything, no one. And I'm like, what are you guys doing? Yeah. What are you doing? What are you doing? For so long. (laughs) Like when I read that for the first time, I'm like, really? Because you assume like there was, you know, you talk about the Stone Age and the Bronze Age and all that kind of stuff. And we're kind of moving at that point. But there really was this long gap of most of human history where no one was doing anything and all the tools were exactly the same. And just a bunch of morons, really, running around. Oh, my God. Thank God they didn't have any perspective to compare it to what life would later be. You know, the pleasantries and activity and fun. <laughs> yeah, fun. Exactly. They had nothing to compare it to. Thank goodness. No one was having fun until like 200 years ago, I think. I don't think anyone. I don't think that word mm, was even mm, mm. defined. If you were a serf in Tsarist Russia, you weren't having any fun. There was mm. nothing fun I'm it, with your life at all. But no, I can't think of much. <laughs> In fact, I was reading about when Tsar Nicholas II, no, yeah, the second was crowned Tsar. He was the last Tsar of Russia and how there was this massive festival that was supposed to be open to the newly freed serfs. They were kind of just working in the land now. They, okay. were, they were they were not really slaves to the land anymore, but they were still dirt poor and how every, they were giving away like biscuits and all these different things and people just trampled each other and like people by the hundreds died basically during this event. So even when they tried to have fun, they weren't able they to have weren't any fun. <laughs> but give them credit for trying. I always Imagine say. telling a caveman what a podcast is. It would take the rest of your... Oh my God. He would have no concept, obviously, of that. He would have no concept of that. <laughs> or if you showed him like... If you showed him Lola. Oh. Like this is a dog, just like your wolf companions. This is a this is also a dog. I don't think they would believe it. That's interesting. Now you got. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Would they would they be fearful or would they try to devour it? Lola, it would be one of two things. Yeah, she's too trusting. So she would be killed in about five seconds. She'd be done. (laughs) That's what I always said. You say about Portillo, Greg's dog. And you could say the same thing for Lola. If we were ever in like a zombie apocalypse situation, they'd be barking and they would have they'd obviously have to go. So what I used to say is like put a little suicide vest on them. And then send them out and they'll run towards the zombies or whatever and at least take some of them out. I think it's a good tactic. I think it's a really good idea. It's dark, but it's it's wow. practical. <laughs> it's practical. It anyway, well, I don't know. What is this show about? This is Knockback, <laughs> our retro and nostalgia podcast that we do every week. My brother and I, we do it here on Patreon at patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand, where you can support the show to get early ad free access as well as the ability to submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas, which litter this particular episode. Quite a few people wrote in about The Thing, which is our topic. And by the way, I shouldn't even say this because I know it's going to tune people in a little bit more, but for many years, I've been criticized by the way I say TH words. Oh. Like thought, thing. I don't know what I'm doing wrong when I say those things, but... I, when I was looking at the list and I said it aloud for the first time, I'm like, oh, this is going to drive people nuts. Oh, that you, all right. Say the thing. Let me hear this because I don't know about this. The thing. The thing. The, the thing. Am I, I don't think I'm saying it. I don't hear anything. I hear. No. I hear. I don't think I hear anything weird there. Uh, I don't think so either. So, you know, people like to complain about things. People complain about all sorts of random shit on the right, internet, as you right. know. Sure. But they do. Of course. Enough people have complained about this over the years or just brought it up. I don't know if we've ever lost anyone. 
because of it but <laughs> i can't take these ths anymore where i'm like i don't know i maybe well because there are a few podcasts where they're they get a little too mouthy yeah or yes it's not well do. edited that will turn me off i can't listen to that shit no i've been through that too I, i'm pretty forgiving but yeah i was listening to someone who was a little mouth noisy the other day i had stumbled upon his content and i thought he was really insightful and pretty smart i forgot what it even was or what they were talking about. But yeah, the mouth noises started to get too too much. And I was like, I can't. I don't know. I think I even might have, sub- I might have like like really jumped in and got excited pretty quick. And was like, oh, I'm subscribing to this guy. So as that first piece is rolling, I hit the subscribe button. And I unsubbed and everything. I was like over it. I, I felt bad, but I was like, I can't. I can't. No, I can't listen to this guy. <laughs> no, I, I don't. Under- yeah, no. I mean, I don't understand how people can put out. You may. Everyone makes noises, breathing noise, whatever the case might be. But. When it's just all over your content. Yeah. You got to be a little it's a big problem. Try to be a little mindful of it, I guess, or something, you know. Yeah. You know, whatever yeah. it is. <laughs> Stop eating. Just getting them Stop all out eating right on now. the podcast. Well, my, I know there's people that even eat on podcasts. Yes. The fuck is going on? I've seen that's, that. That's weird. That's really that's weird. weird. That's weird. It doesn't bother people. Now, mom used to date this guy a long time ago. Uh, who who won't be named because he's a piece of shit, but he used to eat so loud. It used to drive me fucking uh, nuts. That's yeah, and that must have been a bad. And like, I remember him specifically eating like bologna sandwiches on with mayonnaise on like Wonder Bread and just <laughs> as if he didn't have any teeth. And it was just like, oh my and it's like, what? Oh, it's bad. how can how can anyone eat like that? That's pretty bad. It was the same thing. I worked near. I've, I've said this before. I will never out who the person is because I don't want to embarrass this person. But yeah, I, I sat for a long time next to a person at IGN that was the loudest eater in the world where I would actually if I knew this person was going out to lunch, people, I'd be like, oh, I, I got a call. Sorry. <laughs> you couldn't even do it. You couldn't. No, even hang. because it's it's too much. It's just I don't understand how you can get away from being raised by people and going into the real world and you eat like that. That's fucking weird. Yeah, that's a that's big just weird. pet. That's an extra big pet peeve of yours, though. Uh, give me a hint with the IGN person. Was it male or a female? I, I won't even say because oh, okay. that that's okay. too much oh, that's information. Too tell- that's too telling. Okay. All right. Am I even going to go? I won't enough. even go any further than that. Won't even get any further I like your class. I like it, my friend. <laughs> There's a time and place for everything. Absolutely. Now, Dagan, as I said, today's episode is about The Thing, which is the 1982 film. And we'll talk about where it comes from and stuff, because a lot of people are like, oh, this is a remake of another film. I mean, not really, but <laughs> we can t- we can we can talk about that and we can also talk about the films that came well, specifically the one film that came afterwards. And the, of course, there's all sorts of stuff. But this is about the 1982 John Carpenter film. So I just want to be clear because there are a few things. Is there any there. other thing? But yes, there are other things, but there but yet there right. aren't. There's also a dingling <laughs> and a and a pish, a pisha doodle, a pishy doodle, a pisha doodle, a pisha, a pisha d, a pisha deal, whatever the a fuck. Deal. It's fucking gross. We've talked about in the past how in our family, the, when you're a little kid or your parents talking to you about like you know your 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 private area, your your crotch or whatever, that the word the word pish was used yeah, like that was the word that everyone used and then when you when you first enter into a real in the real world and you try to use that word as if it's a word everyone knows but it's not a word anyone knew except for <laughs> us 
I never heard anyone, you know, like the pish, you know, did you, did you wash your pish? Did I ever tell you about my friend Sal from Staten Island? Who I don't know. He's don't... the only other person. I have a friend Sal. He, he, I used to work with him in animation. I haven't seen him in a long time, but he was a really a little younger than me. Really f- funny dude. Born in, and raised on Staten Island in New York, and he was the only other person I ever heard use that. Like he would say, like yeah, like pish, pish, and and like he would say his family grew up saying that he was very Italian. He's full blooded Italian, I think actually. And he's actually the same guy. I'm sure I've told you this before. I might have even said it on the podcast. He's the same guy who has, is quoted as saying, filet a fish. I wouldn't even eat that for Lent. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best quote That's ever. a good one. Talking about McDonald's That's a great filet quote. a fish sandwich. Sounds like something out of a Scorsese flick or something. <laughs> totally does. Totally <laughs> But he So it actually does exist But our family is also We've probably talked about this Right on the podcast before Kyle Our family is known For no, And I'm sorry to everybody I love you guys But notor- for, Notorious for just butchering All the Italian Slang words For things You know And just Making it into something else So And Pish is one of them Which is really weird And P.S. My Helene hates that because she says it sounds like fish, and it's just gross. <laughs> <laughs> That's unintentional, but it but is also unintentional, but good. Yeah, but well, it maybe works. it wasn't. I mean, we don't know what Granny's intent was. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> Holy moly! Oh. What is this episode even about? I, I don't even understand what's we're going. Sorry. On. Apologies to Kurt Russell and John Carpenter. If we're gonna keep saying something like the thing, then I'm just gonna think about the word pish every now and then and that's just the way to <laughs> but my pish. favorite still is like a is like oh madonna me oh madonna me oh man <laughs> it turns into whatever you want it to be yeah it's like ridic- it's just total it's just a total butchering of the italian language but that's fine <laughs> but it's okay it's the Ruggiero. it's the moriarty Ruggiero way yeah i mean just imagine how how bent it's going to get in the next couple generations it's only going to get worse from here all right Dagan. Before we get into the thing, <laughs> I can't say. <laughs> Let's uh, do our opening segment. So I will kick it to you and you will take it from here. Okay, my friend. So knock back. Here we are. <laughs> Picture it. Knock back. Wave 11. New opening segment. We're calling it fake news and all it is. And you guys play along at home. Very simple. I find... A fake, not a fake, I find a true but crazy news story from the internet, newspaper, wherever I could find one. And I also write my own fake news story. I read them both to you guys. And you guys and Colin, the listeners and Colin, figure out which one is fake and which is the real crazy story. You ready? They're both crazy, but only one's true. Here we go. Some of them are getting a little crazy, but let's, let's, hear, let's hear some of these. Okay. Let's go. All right. Here we go. Kyle, a Dutch family who were living on a secluded farm for nearly 10 years, apparently never leaving the premises, were just discovered last week when one of them escaped and divulged his secret to a total stranger. The 18-year-old runaway entered a pub, quickly drank five beers, and then reportedly spilled his guts to bar owner Chris Westerbeek, revealing that his family of eight have been residing on a remote farm for the past decade, Kyle, quote-unquote, waiting for the end of time. 
Whoa. Yeah. I, I know. The fanatical family had been living off a vegetable garden and a single goat. And the six children, ages 18 to 25, had never attended school or had a proper haircut. Police were quickly sent out to the farm to investigate and found the family holed up in the farmhouse basement. The father, a 58-year-old with no past criminal record, was arrested by authorities and taken into custody. Okay? Now soak that one in. Okay. Okay, soak that one in. Remember it. Now here's the other one. Guys, meet the most popular gal in Giblet, Alabama. Turns out <laughs> that 26-year-old. <laughs> All right, keep going. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe it's Giblet. Turns out that 26-year-old Lucy McEvers received a whopping seven marriage proposals over this past weekend, setting a state (laughs) I can't stop laughing. Setting a state record previously held by Rosalind Rogers, who was asked to be a blushing bride twice in one day back in 1919. Lucy is currently dating, but tells us that she was not at all expecting to be bombarded with a small army of kneeling bows and diamond rings. She is currently studying for her graduate degree in social work and says that for the time being, she'd still like to remain single and play the field. Lucy told us with a sly smile, I do believe Mr. Wright is out there somewhere, though. Well, maybe the eighth time will be the charm. Now, guys, Carl, which is the true story and which is the made-up, fabricated tale? There's a lot to get into here because... I'm, there are things about both stories that are peculiar to me, beyond the peculiarities of the actual stories themselves. Okay, I think I know what you're going to say for one of these, and I want to get into that well, with you. Well, let me see what you say first. Well, the, the one about the, the Dutch family on the farm, yeah. what did they do that was illegal, where someone would be arrested? That they didn't send their kids to school or something like that? But like, that's they, probably the, You said the cops has... went, investigated, and arrested someone, but what, what yes. was the crime? Yeah, it was the dad. Uh, is there a name? No, father, 58 year old with no past criminal record. He and the six. Well, here's the weird thing. Not it must be the. It would probably be the schooling thing. I would imagine. But here's the weird thing about this story too. The six children range in age, according to the story, from 18 to 25, and they have only been holed up for almost a decade. So some of these kids were 15. <laughs> When they started living this way. <laughs> yeah, they be- never went to school. All right. So that's that I, I gotta really think more about this. And you were where what this was in the Netherlands or they were a Dutch family in yeah, the US. I'm ass- you know what? Actually the story doesn't say, but I, it must be it must be I'm assuming this would be the Netherlands, right? Because he was eighteen when he went to get a drink, which would be illegal in the US. Right, exactly. So there's that. All right. And then on the other story, not only did you start laughing immediately when you started reading it, so that that's hard for me to tell if that's because you really love your own writing or you found something that was funny. But the weird thing about this one is like, who's keeping the record? Yeah. Like, who's got the record books? How would this how would anyone know what the old record was and what the new record was? Well, small town, small town of Giblet. All right. I think I'm going to say the second one's the fake one. Okay, you think the Lucy McEvers in Giblet, Alabama? <laughs> yeah, in Giblet, Alabama. Giblet, Alabama. 
Yes, I'm going to say that's the fake the, one. That is the fake one. But how strange right. is it? Is the other story that the kids never attended school or got a? I love that they didn't attend school or get a proper haircut. <laughs> <laughs> I kept yeah, that reading seemed that. Ex- and that, that information seemed extraneous for sure. <laughs> I never went to school or had a proper haircut. See, I guess what the Dutch are really prioritizing over there is. Uh, yeah, that's we. There's a lot. I mean, I would love to know more about that story. the 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 one in Alabama was. There's too many. That's too. That was too weird. You know. That <laughs> was even weirder than than the one about the Dutch family. So. This one was strange though, because as I was writing them, now I should say too to you guys, like when I take the real story from the, it's usually from the internet that I find it. Although I found a couple in the New York Post, but. Usually on the internet, when I find these, I rewrite them. First of all, because they're written really poorly. and se- Usually. And secondly, because I don't want to just plagiarize the story. I-, I try to add a little color, but I don't, add any fa- I don't add any falsities. I don't add anything to the story. But I try to just make it flow a little better. Maybe I try to edit it a little bit. But yeah, that one was really weird because it didn't go into... The mom wasn't involved. Something about like they didn't know what happened to the mom, but she was there at one point. And the guy wasn't being looked at for murder or any kind of foul play. It was just that he was forcing his family. It sounded like that he was forcing his family to live on like this little, you know, eight person commune because for some kind of religious purposes, I mean, for waiting for the end of time. But it didn't go into anything more about that. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I wonder if they're Adventists or whatever, because doomsday Christianity was huge in the United States in the 19th century and into the 20th century. And people can go read about that at their leisure. But there were all sorts of people waiting for the end in upstate New York and Pennsylvania and all. And people would even sell their belongings and like That's it would get really crazy. And then like they, there would be like a specific date, like April 20th, 1840 or whatever it was. And then it would come and go and nothing would happen or whatever. I think people can. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's the origin of seven day Adventists, which is still a oh. pretty popular religion in the I United States. Look, I, I, I want to say that they were that they were the ones that were like doomsday prophets. OK. In the 19th century. That makes sense. But that I makes could sense. be wrong about that. I'm going to look that up, actually. I'm interested in that. Yeah, that's very uh, I'm assuming it had something, you know, it almost seemed like it had that cult sort of angle to it, but. It didn't go into anything more. That's what's so fun about exploring for these stories. You find some really weird stuff. And you don't find just semi-contemporary stuff. You find stuff from like dating back sometimes 50, 100 years in all places on the globe. So it's actually, this is a really interesting uh, segment for me because I learn a lot. And I get to write about Giblet, Al- my apologies to everybody in Giblet, Alabama. In Giblet or, or Giblet, Alabama. <laughs> or Giblet. You know what? Our apologies to everyone in Alabama, General. Yeah, my apologies <laughs> to everyone. We're just blanking it. The whole South. Our apologies to the whole South. Alabama. Alabama. Um, all right. So let's get into it then. Let's do it. Kyle, the thing. You know what? Yeah. Just a brief aside. I, I'm remembering now. I dated a girl named Alabama, and I didn't. I don't think I've ever knew a real name. <laughs> That wasn't yeah, a I was real say, name. You meet her like a stri- would you meet her like a strip club or something like that? <laughs> Sounds like that, but no. There's no way that her name... She All right, this chick was definitely a stripper. No, she was... I mean, she she wasn't she wasn't technically one, but she, she was a friend of a friend's girlfriend, I think. That's how I met her in Philly. But she must have been going to school in Philly. I don't know where she went to school. So many colleges in Philly. But 
yeah, I that's what I called her even while I was dating her. I remember PJ calling her that too, and my other fr- Josh and my other friends. And I, I, I don't know if I ever knew her real name. You know that? I really don't know. May, you know what? Maybe I inherited the nickname. Like maybe that's what everybody called her. And we just inherited that. Like we just started calling her that too. I'm assuming that's what it must have been. But I don't know. It's anyway, interesting. I'm reminiscing. It's now. like your, it's your like uh, story about the girl you met at the the mall who you dated for several months who didn't know your name. I thought my name was until, Danny. Until she called and Uncle Mike blew up the story, I guess, Tiffany. for you. That was Tiffany. Yeah. Tiffany. Yeah. Oh, Uncle Mike. He he would I, I couldn't imagine uh, the embarrassment that you experienced. Uh, that was of that. the that was just yeah. That was lightning in a bottle right there. It was like it had to be that phone call with Uncle Mike standing in the kitchen. It was just the perfect who knows how long that charade would have went on. Right? Had it not you been, been married. You might have gotten married. You and she's, gotten married. I know. Who knows? She might still think my name is Danny. You never know. <laughs> you, you think she tells stories, you know. People reminisce about their old bows and bells. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I don't know why I said that. <laughs> but uh, do you think that she's like she talks about you? No. But she never knew your name. So she's she's referring to a person that doesn't technically really exist. True. That's a, a, true. In a sense. I would think she wouldn't be telling her side of the story because she's kind of the one who maybe looks a little. I don't want to be mean. I mean, she looks a little buffoonish. For not knowing yeah. my proper name. Yeah, she's dumb. She's oh. one of those dumb kids. No <laughs> doubt. You know, we always see you. We, you and I have talked about this before. Everyone thinks that they're like, where are the parents of children who are like, my child is totally average or like the, the child of the child of like the, the dumb kid. Everyone right. knows dumb kids. Sure. The, but do the parents ever admit that they're the parent of the dumb kid? I don't know. But that would be, that's know, a, just that would be amazing if that was the case. Like, yeah, my kid is just my kid's just not very smart. Yeah, he's good. He's a nice boy. I feel like being the parent of a dumb kid actually comes with a little a little uh, shine, a little luster because there's some comedy involved there. I like what you said first, being like the parent of a completely blanket average kid. Right. That's actually that's actually more refreshing. Like my kid is completely average. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like like Arthur amazing. the Aardvark. That's who I think about when I think of the a- an average child is Arthur the Aardvark. Is for that some right? That's right. It, yeah. That show, so I feel like that shows a little bit. You saw, you're referring to the cartoon. Right. I feel like, which may have been based on children's books. I'm sorry for not knowing that. I don't know. I, I imagine they are based on children's books, but I thought you were a little too old for that. Now, I see Arthur the Aardvark with our cousin's Allie, our cousin's Allie, Allie Elizabeth, and... Junior, because they grew up watching that show. You being, but was that on when you were when you were little? Maybe it was. No, no? I got to be honest. That when I was in middle school, I watched that show. Okay, you know what? Are you talk. <laughs> who are you talking to? I watched Sesame Street when I was in middle school. Not ironically. <laughs> Not in. I may have also. Wa- I may. I may have also watched Arthur in high school. All right. So, <laughs> Arthur topic. Got moving it. on. Okay, let's do it. You know, I don't know what it was about Arthur. There was just something about that that family. Yeah. The dad, I think the dad was like a cook, right? And the mom was I don't know, I don't know. I don't know if she was a stay-at-home mom or something and then and then DW was the little sister. There was just something interesting about the nuclear family. Buster was like the best friend and I don't know. I I I I felt like I was very uplifted when I was watching Arthur. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. All yeah. right. I'm going to get you a blue. I think they still the I really think stuff. they still make episodes, by the way. I think they still produce it. You know what? They may. 
they definitely it's a PBS cartoon if I'm not mistaken that's yeah. a PBS thing and now they have PBS has in the recent years um have a 24 hour block now so they have to fill that up so I'm sure they're playing it even if it's not in production it's definitely syndicated so it's just it's just endless episodes of Nova and Scientific American Frontiers for <laughs> that would be amazing 24 hours a day That'd reading awesome. rainbow I used to love it. I used to oh reading rainbow Nova's the best. I mean, Nova's one of the greatest shows ever. I fucking love Nova. Oh, that's a good. Oh, my this God. This is a good topic called PBS of the 80s. Yeah, write it down. PBS write it down in your extensive. Write it down. You're like a scribe. You have so many notes. I so do many like to take notebooks notes. and things. You like to write. You like to write things down. I do. I do. A PBS of the 80s. And I'm going to give you. I might even bestow on you an Arthur topic. You never know what might oh. happen on knockback. Arthur. I mean, I, I, I would have to really. I can go deep, but I'd have to go back and really brush up on everything because there was a lot of good stuff happening on PBS when I was Arthur was a little later but when I was in like elementary school middle school you had like Wishbone which was really good oh, I don't even know what Ghostwriter which I loved that's Carmen back. Sandiego yeah I saw that which is awesome yeah that's so cool and I loved Carmen Sandiego with the, I can't remember her name it was like the black woman who was like the yeah detective what or whatever and then she she's gave you great. like the, yeah she's awesome she looked like she, she remind I don't know if she looked like her but she reminded me of Mrs. Rickenbacker who was my elementary school teacher yes, in first and second grade. I remember she had like the short, she had like the short hair, you know, and all that. So oh my God, yeah, I forgot about that. They were obviously both black. So there was, <laughs> there was that similarity. <laughs> you could have stayed. Well, you might as well state the obvious. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home, and then there's a version of it where you have someone help you, you watch them do it the right way, and you go, thank God I didn't try to do that myself. I have fully done things around the home that I think look good, and then a bang in the night, and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like it, I've, I've seen it all go south. I own a home, and I can tell you... I know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, you can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings, but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com. All right. All right. Let's do this. Yeah, let's get into it. All right. So 1982 is the thing. It came out June 25th, 1982, directed by now famous John Carpenter. Mm -hmm. And this was an interesting film because, and I was glad to go back and watch it because I always really held this film in high esteem. And I hadn't seen it all the way through probably since the Netflix disc era. So it's probably been more than 10 years. It might have even been in college, but I've caught it. I think it was actually on. Oh, I just dropped my phone. I think it was actually on. Let me think here. It might have been on streaming somewhere at some point. But anyway, yeah, I watched it. I enjoyed it. 
And I hadn't really seen it front to back in a long time. So when we when it was my turn to make this list, I put it on the list because I was like, well, we, we had some really good conversations about Rosemary's Baby and some of these other older horror flicks. This is about 10 years after Rosemary's Baby. And it's obviously a very different movie. It's psychological, but it's also blatantly gore, horror, gore driven oh, horror. But but I got to say, in watching the film stem to stern for the first time in a while, I'll say right off the top, it's not as good as I thought it was. Oh, interesting. Take. And, OK. Yeah. And I, I think what the film reflects and what the film means and the way you can interpret the movie, I think, is actually more interesting than the bulk of the film, which I find really interesting and but also dragged down by, I think, too many characters and a lot of like rapid movement between the stories. And you can kind of tell that scenes were cut, which they were. So there's things that are missing. Sure, definitely. Um, so I, I'm excited to talk about it because I still feel really positively about it because of what it represents and also the evolution it's taken since it came out in 1982 and the way people felt about it then and the way people feel about it now. And I have to say, when I started reading about this film, I almost immediately stopped because I didn't realize that there were so much conjecture and like essay writing and ideas about this movie. It's almost what I expected to find when we did Rosemary's Baby. And I found very little of that, like very little interpretation of the movie. Right. And with this, I found like tons and tons of things that people had to say, like even the Wikipedia page is huge. It is like way bigger than most flicks, like going into the pre-production and the production and the 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 way people thought about it then the way people think about it now and its legacy and all that so it's fun because i actually like removed myself because i didn't want to be i didn't want to be occupied with what other people thought of the film i really wanted to interpret it as however we're going to interpret it so i think it'll be a pretty cool conversation absolutely absolutely i love that i yeah i can't wait to hear you break it down i have one question for you though kyle when did you first see it you being the movie's two years older than you are so Right. How? It when is. did you first? Do you remember your first, the first time you saw this film? No, I think that I saw it on TV because there are certain scenes, like the intro scene with the dog being chased by the copter. That's like a really famous film scene. I mean, I, I think a lot of people that know this movie would know that. And so I remember seeing that a long time ago, and so it was probably on like you know Stars or something like that, whatever we had yeah. back in the day. And then, yeah, and then I rented it on DVD during the Netflix era, and then I believe I streamed it somewhere. It might have even been on Netflix for a time, like during the more primitive streaming era. Yeah, it might have been. And then just this time. Okay. So okay. I don't know exactly. I, I, was, I wanted to ask you, though, because at this point you were nine yeah. when this movie came out. I was out, eight. And I was, was going to be nine later that year. Oh, yes, that's right. You're, you're yeah. right. You were eight. I was young. And so what did you, well, what are your memories of this film? I'm I'm curious because it is so gory and so oh vivid God. and it's and it's horror. I'm I'm interested to see like what what when did you familiarize yourself with it? It's so gory. It's still to this day. You guys know me by now. I'm really averse to gore. I don't like gory films. I don't. I'm not a big horror film guy. Uh, at least I don't really enjoy the gore aspect of horror. I really can't take it. You know, much to my friend, my best friend PJ's you know, dismay because he really, that's really what he loves. He really digs that kind of stuff, but it's still one of the goriest films I've ever seen. And I was really glad that you picked this film, Kyle, because one, I really do like this film very much. I think it's a very watchable and rewatchable film, which is actually kind of odd because it's a very bleak and generally unpleasant film. I'll say, and we'll get more. We'll, we'll talk much more about that, but I was glad you picked it because I put it up there pretty high in the pantheon of, 
earlier, you know, 70s slash 80s sci-fi, certainly sci-fi slash horror flicks. And, you know, it's a John Carpenter film. So, and you, you know, talk about his directorial chops and the fact that it's one of his, you know, triumvirate of films that he did with Kurt Russell, which you could say about that. But the other thing, more importantly than all of that stuff, I grew up with this movie because I didn't see it in the theaters when I was eight. To my best recollection, I must have been about 10 years old when I first saw this. And it must have been, it definitely wasn't a rental. It couldn't have been a rental for me at that age. But I think, because all of that, obviously, I'm 10 years old, all of that stuff went through mom. And she wasn't going to rent a rated R movie for me. So I must have seen it on Showtime or HBO, but probably Showtime during that time where I was turning like nine to 10. I don't think I was even as old as 11. So figure it was in the theater, had a little time to make its way onto cable. So probably 83, 84. And it was one of those movies that I talk about, just like I said with Poltergeist, I watched it way too young and I was riveted by it. I was horrified and at the same time riveted by it. And I watched it over and over again. I probably watched it. I probably watched this movie six or seven times during that time because I just, it was one of those things. It was a car wreck for me. I was really, really squeamish. I couldn't really stand the gore. I couldn't stand the violence. It was also pretty frightening for me as a kid. And I just couldn't turn away. I just kept watching it. You know, I just really disturbed myself with this movie. So I was so glad that you picked this because I put this up there with Poltergeist, other things I saw really young, like Watership Down that disturbed me. So it's one of those movies that was like really left an imprint for me because I really shouldn't have been watching it. And I'm not even saying a 10-year-old of that era of the early 80s necessarily. No 10-year-old should have watched it. But for me, just how sensitive I was of of a kid and how that kind of stuff would just get in my head and disturb me. It was the first, it was probably the first, I had thought of this, it was the first dismemberment I think I ever saw on film. We'll get to that scene. And it was super, super violent. And I just cannot stop tuning into it, which is really, I was really compelled by this movie. And I can't wait to break it down and talk about it because it might be kind of therapeutic for me as well. You know, I will say I'm yeah, watching we'll, it, we'll I'm rewatching it. it. I love I really enjoy it. I really enjoy this movie. It's but it's odd because I could see why it had a really negative critical reception when it first came out because it's a really really bleak and generally unpleasant film in a lot of ways. But it's very well crafted and very well done and very well acted. So that's where we'll start if that's fair enough. No, that's perfect. I think that it's worth noting that the film, which, again, I said came out in 1982, was actually being marinated on since the mid 70s. And we actually got a question from Sam Dunham, who said, great remake or greatest remake ever. He's referring to the fact that this movie was based on a John W. Campbell short story. It's really a novella called Who Goes There, I think. And that in 1951, I think that book's from the 30s. And from in 1951, they made, during kind of more of the monster era of films, they made a, thing, a movie called The Thing from Another World, which was loosely based on this. But I don't think that... I, and I don't, I, I've never seen that film. First of all, I'm not familiar with it. And I've never read the book. But no, I don't either. really look at... And reading about these things, I don't really see The Thing as a remake of the, of the 1951 flick at all. Because as far as I understand... 
it was Carpenter and some other people, the producers and stuff that wanted to drive this to make a film based on Campbell's book that was actually true to the book. Yes. So I don't think that it's really a remake as much as just a reimagining of the book itself. Yes. If that makes any sense. That's what it sounds like to me. Yeah. From what I, from everything I've heard of Carpenter and interviews and commentaries and all that kind of stuff, that's exactly what this is. And I feel like, first of all, I looked just to be sure because we don't always have the answers to this when we do film based stuff, but here in the U S the thing is not available to stream on any of the services, but you can buy it on PlayStation Store and I bought it on Amazon. So it is available to rent or buy yeah. if you want to watch it, which you obviously should. I don't think that you should listen to this without having watched it. But the film is basically about an American research facility in Antarctica. It's 1982. So the same t- year that the film ta- or is, is filmed in is the year that it takes place. And it's basically about the secluded group of researchers and scientists and laborers or whatever that are working in an American base. And in the beginning of the film, we have this iconic scene that we'll talk about in a, in a moment that sets it all in the, into play where there's a Norwegian group that we never really meet. And the Norwegian group has basically discovered an alien spacecraft that had crashed in the, Antar- in the Antarctic 100,000 years ago or more. They say, I think, in the film that it's at least 100,000 years that right. it passed. Yep. And how they uncovered, I guess, an alien creature that is quite wily indeed because it adapts and mimics the animals and the creatures that it touches and comes into contact with. So it can basically be a human or it can be a dog as we see in the beginning. And that's what the film's about is about them dealing with this thing. But what's so interesting about it and what, where all the interpretation comes in is not only in the way the film ends, which we'll talk about later, but also in what the point of the film is at all, because it's not a self encapsulated horror flick about a manic slasher or anything like that the consequences of them not containing what they find could potentially destroy the entire planet, which I always thought was the most interesting part of the film that because of the nature of its ability to adapt and evolve into various creatures that this thing can get into the wild. Once people come and look in on what's going on at this Antarctic base and then so on and so forth until you know it, it gets to civilization and then it wreaks its havoc. Right. So I always really enjoyed that aspect of it because it's not like a, well, for instance, John Carpenter's 1978 film Halloween, for which he became famous for, which is a great film, is not a a horror film with any consequences apart from the few people that are dealing with Mike Myers and all that. It doesn't have like this existential situation underlying all of it, which I think gives the thing a lot of gravity and a lot of weight, which I think is cool. Yeah. So that's one of the things that's really exciting to talk about. But before we get into any more of that, Corey Savas wrote into us and said, this is one of my favorite horror films because of how well Carpenter nails the atmosphere and tone. Never have I seen paranoia so masterfully realized. And Shell Dirked, Dirked. Hey, I don't Shel. know how to say your last name. I'm sorry. But X or I'm sorry, K-J-E-L-L, which is a great name, says the thing is a John Carpenter or is the John Carpenter's magnum opus. What a great film. A remake done right. Now, see, I, I don't. Eh, I don't really quite see it like that. That's better than the original and a good double feature with 1978's Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Mm. I must admit, I've never seen I've never seen that film. Never saw never that? Nope. Okay. I don't think so. Yeah, I could see that putting those two films on par for sure. Yeah, but I love what Corey brought up, Dig, about the paranoia. Yeah. And I think that that's what the film is all about, too, underlying it. It's almost like, I think a lot of films can be boiled down like this, but it almost reminds me of a game of Clue 
in some respect where you're trying to figure out who the person is, what the motive is, the weapon they might use, all those kinds of things. And it's not quite as literal as that. But when you deal with contained stories of trust and paranoia, which is what the thing really focuses on and orbits around. That's like what comes to mind for me for some reason is is the game of Clue. That's funny. I, you know, the board yeah. game. Which, I could see I, that. I really love. I could totally see that. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good, you know, you're, you're kind of in this closed off environment. You're isolated, you know, in this case, in this American research outpost, in the board games case, just this house. And you have to figure out you're in, you're, you know, you're kind of within that limited environment. And you got to figure out, you know, who done it or who's going to do it or who's going to do it or who might. Yeah. And that's the way the film ends is is open to interpretation about is it already is it even done at this point now i think that there's a sequel video game which we'll talk about in a moment right. and all these other things that i think kind of open it up more but i like to really interpret the film based solely through what we see in the film it's it's what we always talk about with star wars about well to understand why this alien is on the casino world you have to have read grand admiral <laughs> thrawn's trilogy it's like shut up I'm not going to do that. Companion. So, companion books. Exactly. We're, so we're not going to do any of this kind of stuff with this film either, although there are things to talk about in that respect. Now, Dave, yeah. we did get a, a, a question or a comment here from Stephen Day, and I think that this is a good way to set up a, an important discussion point that we should have. Okay. He says, hi, guys. First time, hi, guys. long time. Well, we appreciate it. The movie is one of my favorite all time, second only to Alien. Mm. I could gush for hours about the practical effects, the magnificent casting, or even just Kurt Russell. Instead, I will just just ask a question. What could be more terrifying than the utter seclusion inside that base, trapped with something that almost perfectly imitates your coworkers? So I feel like this movie only works no later than like the late 80s. I don't think that you can really have an impact. I know they made a new one in 2011 and all that, but I don't think you can have an impactful Film it reminds me a little bit of Until Dawn, which is a PlayStation 4 game. That's a horror game that takes place in, I think, Alberta. Okay. Or Saskatchewan or something in Canada. And how they have no cell phones, no internet, and all that kind of stuff. Gotcha. This movie works in a really specific way because in modernity, there would have been a million different ways for them to reach out to the wider world, even when their radios went down as they go down in the thing. Even when they don't have computers that are connected to the internet, but all it would take today is like a satellite phone and you'd be fine or satellite internet connection working on one laptop at your facility and you could do whatever you need to do. So this movie works for me because of its secluded nature. And that's what makes a lot of horror work, which is, which is why I think a lot of horror takes place in the middle of nowhere. Obviously it's very rare that a horror film takes place like in the middle of a city, right? With the exception of Leprechaun in the hood, of course. And, Which was a, a, cla- a PJ classic. Of course. And I also must say, apart from that, that there's something about the Arctic or Antarctic. The Antarctic is where this takes place. So the Southern Hemisphere, as opposed to the Arctic, which is the Northern Hemisphere, that with ice and snow and glacier and blizzards and the cold and the low sun and the little daylight. I love this shit. Oh, I mean, me this too. is the kind of stuff that makes me so fascinated about like anything that takes place in that setting is automatically interesting to me or automatically more interesting to me than it would be in other situations like a forest or like if you think about Friday the 13th with like Crystal Lake and all that, like that's right. cool. But that's not an Antarctic research base thousands of miles away from everyone else in just the absolute epitome of seclusion where you have like one helicopter yeah. to get in and out. No internet, no cell phones, nothing like that. So 
do you feel a similar way that the not only to, to Stephen's point, not only the secluded nature of the film, but also the cold, the snow, the ice. I feel like that all adds something to it. What do you think? Oh, definitely. I mean, first of all, the weather conditions in that part of the world, you know, you talk about on the glacier and in Antarctica, it's it's so cold that it's actually quite deadly. So the environment and the place where they're at is also an enemy on top of the enemy that they're dealing with, which is this insidious parasitic alien. So the environment actually becomes an enemy. And what's so cool about that place, they're filming it in, you know, Western Canada, Northern Canada, it's supposed to be Antarctica. But what's so cool about that sort of environment is that it's quite beautiful and majestic even, but at the same time, extremely apathetic. You know what I mean? Like it's, there's nothing in that environment, first of all, that could help you. It's not like being in the woods where you could stumble upon a lake or you could forage for something that's not poisonous to eat. It's completely apathetic to human survival. And that makes it frightening. And, and in the same time, being beautiful is also kind of really something that's very magnetic. And I think it also takes on a different kind of beauty at night. And the other thing is, too, what you know, what you get with the cold and what you get with that sort of environment is that, well, I mean, to get it, I mean, I don't want to ruin it. First of all, I have to say what Colin already said before, just before I forget to say, this movie is really interesting in that it, I think it holds up very well in a lot of ways and it sort of, it's sort of timeless in a lot of ways and it also sort of doesn't hold up so well in a lot of ways, but definitely go watch it. If you haven't seen this 1982 version, John Carpenter's The Thing, definitely watch it first and then come back and hear us talk about it because it's not the type of movie you want spoiled for yourself. You want to go in not having anything spoiled because it is kind of a, like Colin said, it is kind of a whodunit. But the other thing really about the cold, Kyle, is that, you know, there's no one coming to help. There's no police force there's no military. As they say in the movie, you're a thousand miles, you're thousands of miles away from the nearest life, anything that could sustain you or help you. So whatever you have, whatever people you have there, whatever resources you have there is the only thing that you're going to get. And there's something really, you really put yourself into a film like this because you're constantly wondering about what you, how you would endure this trial and what you would do if put in this situation. So I love that. And I think the cold really, you know, the cold, this harsh, cold, bleak environment really plays into that as well. And I love how they, just to expand on that, they make it, at least in the beginning, like cozy, right? And with the exception of the dog chase and the, it, it, it starts out pretty fast. Like, I don't even remember it starting out quite like that, where I'm like, wow, they're getting right into they it. They get right but, into it. But there is like a little bit of a coziness that they kind of portray in the beginning. They make it clear that it's the beginning of their their winter. You don't really know exactly, unless I'm not paying close enough attention, you don't really know exactly what they're doing or we know that they're doing research. I mean, these research stations exist all over Antarctica. Yeah. So it's not like they could be doing literally anything. They could be studying weather. They can be studying astronomy. Well, they don't really have a, a, a dish or anything like that, but they could be doing all sorts of different things down there, which other people do as well. Sure. And I like how they kind of set it up as being like, well, this seems like a cozy situation. They have like a TV with video cassettes and they have music and they have lots of alcohol and computers and they're playing pool, I think, or and they have like an arcade cabinet, like they have an asteroids cabinet and stuff. So, yeah, it's it's pretty cool like that. They set it up as being 
not that threatening. So you have like these multiple layers of like, well, this setting is threatening. Their reality in the setting doesn't seem all that threatening. And the threat comes from, I guess, not only that lifelessness that you had described, not only the snow and the ice, but underneath the snow and the ice are just are just rocks uh, surrounded by sea that has no real useful life in it for you and all of these kinds of things, but also that they then kind of take it away from you really quickly. Like they're even smoking weed and stuff, which is, yeah. which is funny. Yeah, no, absolutely. You really, it's really a great point. I'm so glad you brought this up because the setting feels, first of all, it feels very realistic. And second of all, you could see that they have what these guys have, what this dozen or so guys have in this sort of outpost is like, they're almost like, Every they're being catered to their every whim almost like there's a card table like Colin was saying a pool table a ping pong table a pinball machine arcade machine a shelf full of if you really pay attention to the background there's shelves full of board games and books and puzzles and model kits and they have this this now antiquated but then pretty jazzy you know chess computer this chess wizard computer and like Kyle said a a bar full of booze and beer and TVs and all this kind of stuff. And you could see it's like, you know, these guys are out in the middle of nowhere. They have to preserve, they have to kind of keep their boredom in check and keep that cabin fever at bay. So it's like they have all this stuff and it almost is a really comforting home-like environment. The other thing that's really striking about it is like these guys must have had a huge budget, like to have an asteroids cabinet in your outpost in the early 80s and night because this movie is set in 82 as well. You know, that's pretty telling, man. Those things were thousands of dollars. So I like that. And it does sort of lull you into a false set of comfort. You know, you got the cook character skate, you know, roller skating around. And, you know, like Kyle said, they're smoking weed and listening to music and playing poker and have smoking a joint. So I love the fact that they have you have that in the setting because, A, it feels really realistic. That's what these guys would have up there in order to stave off boredom. And two, it kind of lead you in, you know, where you're going to get led in the next few minutes is in a complete other direction from all these pleasantries. So I love that. And, uh, you know, my biggest frustration with this entire movie, by the way, is that no one is playing that asteroids cabinet at any point. Like, why is no one? (laughs) Why is no one playing that? You know, I remember as a kid being like, so put off by that. You know, as a kid, you know, you think of a kid from the 70s and 80s was our, our dream to own anything like that. It's like, what? They have that in their house? Like, why is nobody playing? Why are those guys not playing that? <laughs> I remember yeah, I would have that. been a master at asteroids in like five days, probably. <laughs> that thing was around me. But it's one of my critiques of the film, though, about the intro is that I wish that they inverted the intro so that they showed the setting first and then the dog chase later. Because yes, I, I feel like that that to me is like uh, I really I think that that intro is obviously iconic and it's hard to watch still, even when, you know, that the dog isn't a dog or a wolf or whatever, but the thing and they're shooting it and you're kind of watching this dog like run around and you feel bad. I, I mean, I, I remember watching it being like, I still feel bad for this dog, even though it's not really a dog. I know just running through and it's like tired and it's fatigued or whatever. But the other thing that I just feel like they could have done a lot more for the horror to introduce the station first and then had the chase that kind of disrupts everything and, and go from there, because it seemed a little topsy turvy from a storytelling perspective in that regard to me. I think it would have been I think it would have served the horror a lot more. But what do you think about that? That iconic helicopter chase intro? Because, oh, first so of all, good. how bad are these guys at a, at shooting? <laughs> 
Norwegian. I guess they're scientists. Not, Maybe who knows what's going true. on. But that's true. These guys have to be scientists. So, you know, at best they're like McCready there. You know, one's a helicopter pilot apparently, and the other guy's probably a scientist. And you know, he has a bitchin' assault rifle, but he's not too good of a shot with it. But yeah, it's a, it really is an iconic opening, and I love the fact of trying to open a movie and jumping right into the action. But I think it is very hard to do. And I agree with you, Kyle. It is. It does seem kind of like a weird way to sequence the events because what ends up happening is you have this this opening where these Nor you know turns out these Norwegian scientists are trying to shoot this what seems like this innocent wolf or half wolf half sled dog whatever it is, and apparently, which is really cool, are actually saying in Norwegian that trying to warn the American scientists, the American outposts, that that's not, they're saying, like, that's not a dog, it's a monster, like, it's not really a dog, before they have their altercation. But I, but what's odd is that you you open with this action-packed sequence, which is, which is quite violent, it turns out to be quite violent, actually, and then you revert back to them chilling, and it actually seems to be saying that the guys are pretty complacent. Which actually kind of makes sense because none of them are, you know, we'll get into the character of McReady, but none of them are, with with save the Kurt Russell character probably, are like action hero type of characters. They're scientists. You know, they're radio operators and meteorologists and biologists and all kind of stuff. That sort of thing. So it makes sense that they would be a little complacent, but just for a beat for beat, you know, by making an entertaining movie, it is a it does kind of go out of sequence, which is kind of weird. It's like action, complacency, danger, and action. So it is kind of strange to order it that way. But I do I I love the opening. You you do jump right into it. You're thinking, what the hell? Because we don't understand what the Norwegian characters are saying. And it turns out, you know, not to ruin anything. Again, go watch the film first before you listen to us, guys. But it turns out to be an altercation and it turns into a gunfight. And one of the Norwegian, one of the American uh, research guys, you know, the actual, the head of the base actually ends up killing one of the Norwegians, puts, puts a bullet through his head, not before Norwegian injures one of the American, one of the American scientists. So that's where we're starting is that there was this scuffle. There was obviously this panic. And it is actually quite intriguing because you're wondering what the hell is going on here? And by the way, that wolf or that husk, I don't know if it's a Malmute or a wolf or half and half. Later on, we'll talk about the actual, the different dog that's in the interior of the base that plays the dog later. But did a great job. Did an amazing job. Super, uh, super amazing acting by this, do- by this dog. <laughs> <laughs> this dog's acting was phenomenal. Superb, superb. I will say that there's another, there's a lot of weird, In you can infer a lot of things from the movie, which I think is intentional, but... One of the things I love most about the intro is when the Norwegians blow up their own helicopter on accident. But that happens from a guy grabbing a grenade and then dropping it in the snow. But what was was he going to throw the grenade at all of them? Because that, that's what it seemed like they were going to do. They were going to kill everyone in order to get the dog. Yeah. I mean, that's that seemed to be the intent. Sheer so that panic. was an interesting thing, too. That was like really violent when you think about it, you know. And it justifies the American. What character is it that kill? Uh, it's the. Um what is his name? Gary? Is it Gary? The head of the research base. Yeah, I don't only have a few character names written down. And that's not one of them. So I apologize. Yeah, I'm going to I'll find I his name know. for you guys. But he ends up he's the one who ends up kill. Yeah, Gary, the character of Gary, the Donald Moffat character. He's the station commander of the research base. He's the one who's 
while the you know this guy's has a grenade. There's an explosion. He has an assault rifle. He's shooting. He shoots one of the researchers in the leg, and this guy, the Donald Moffat character, basically knocks a window out with his revolver and shoots because he's in he's still indoors and shoots the Norwegian scientist in the head and kills him. He shoots him right through the eye, actually. So and that's where we're starting. That's where this movie starts. I mean, that's minutes into the movie, and that's where we're you know that's that's our takeoff point. So it's quite intriguing at this point, I would say, Kyle. Did you think that the preface scene was necessary with the ship in like going to Earth? Because that's that's one of the things to where I'm like, I don't think you need this at all. In fact, yeah. I think it kind of ruins the intrigue of the film. If I were if I were editing the film or, or giving my input on it in the early 80s, I've been like, you don't you don't. First of all, this doesn't even look very good compared to a lot of sci fi of the time. And right. We don't this kind of ruins the entire plot. Of the film. Yeah. yeah. Like that was that's a little bit that would, I wrote that down actually in my notes. I didn't write down too many things when I was watching it. That's one of the things I wrote where I'm like, eh, why would you why would you telegraph this to the audience? They yes. have no idea what the nature of the threat is. That's a great point. And you literally tell them immediately what the threat is. Yeah. Right. I from the start. Right that. from the very start. And you're right. And you know what else? It ruins the reveal later on when they find the crash, the crash site, which is actually quite right. epic. You see the scope of it. You see the size of it. It seems like that opening is almost catering to a very late 70s, early 80s sci-fi trope of if like we want to be like Star Wars. We want to be like Alien, Empire Strikes Back. We're going to have the intro with the spaceship and we're going to make it all sci-fi. It almost I didn't hear anything about that. I, I really researched the hell out of this movie. I listened to a lot of commentary and making of type stuff and even some fan analysis of the film, which is quite interesting. And a lot of not really knowledgeable people, a lot of fanatical people about this movie. But yeah, that almost seems like it's catering to that sort of sci-fi trope. And you know, it's not even that impressive compared to, you know, Star Wars and in fact, Empire, right, had already come out at this point. So, yeah. you know, Jedi was only a year away. It's not even. So, you know, you had... Already really, really, um, Wrath of Khan was already a thing. So you already had great sci-fi with great effects and spaceship effects and outer space effects. So it was kind of weird that they did that. For me, it, it would ruin the reveal later on because that that reveal when, you know, you see the ship crash through the ice and it's so massive and you have that really impressive matte painting. It's really, it really kind of ruins that moment a little bit. So I'm glad you brought that up because I didn't think about that ruining it, but it does. It actually does. Yeah, I just don't understand the purpose. I, I was wondering if it's like a Spielberg-esque beating you over the head with like, in other words, if that was a scene that was added like after when they were like, it's not obvious enough what's going on in this film. We need to we need to set it up in such a way that it's very obvious what's going on. And I'm like, I don't know. I, I, I found that weird because like you said, the it becomes obvious when they find the ship later on. And I think that the intrigue behind that would have been much more. Much more compelling, let's say. You know what bothers me about it too, Kyle? Especially in such an inventive yep. movie like this, especially with John Carpenter's take specifically on sci-fi, is that I got really... And again, I can't be too judgmental of this because this is an older film. You know, you're going on... Oh, this is a long time ago. But with somebody as inventive as Carpenter, I would have liked to seen a more creative take on the spaceship rather than the saucer thing. The flying saucer thing is very 50s. And I know you're basing, you're, they're basing it, you know, loosely basing it on something that came much earlier. The novel, the novella came much earlier in the, in the movie in the early 50s, I believe. But, you know, the flying saucer thing, really? Like, we're going to do the saucer-shaped spacecraft? This is such an inventive film about 
a really terrifying and different take on an alien character and how insidious it is and, you know, how intelligent it is and how, you know, the whole parasitic nature of it. So to see the UFO shaped, you know, that sort of sci-fi, old 50s sci-fi trope was kind of disappointing for me. I was like, oh, man, I, I had forgotten about it. And then I was like, oh, man, like they couldn't do something different than a UFO. It almost it actually makes the alien a little less impressive because <laughs> you're like, oh, it's just like every it's just like every other alien. It just drives around this UFO, this saucer shaped UFO. Yeah, the contrast is definitely there with what are considered and really what are amazing practical effects with these, with this really kind of half-baked, like you said, this flying saucer. And when you really compare it, I'm not expecting them to do ILM level stuff, especially with the budget that they had, which, which was pretty high for the type of movie it was at a $15 million yeah. budget. Yeah. Yeah. But, but none, but they needed more money to even get the film finished. And they cut a bunch of stuff out of the film that they couldn't finish with the money that they were given. So, I imagine even if they weren't very impressed with the way that looked or the way that was going or they wanted to try something different, they probably just didn't have the option to further explore that, which is their own fault because it should have been that should have been settled. I mean, why wouldn't you go? I think we talked about this on the alien. I think we talked about this on the alien episode, but yeah, why wouldn't you go at this time and just go to the best possible people to make this happen? That's the that's the thing that's a little confusing to me. I understand that there are limitations and stuff, but I feel like when you look because you had brought up Star Trek and some of these other things when the film started coming out, and obviously Star Wars is at this point, and, and a few others, they look so good still. Like, if you go watch Empire or Jedi today, they still look really good. Yeah. And it's all practical. So you would think that they would want to, you know, go after the best people, but maybe they just didn't have the money. Yeah, so. or maybe the, or maybe ILM and, and Lucas and, and those guys didn't have, you know, the Spielberg camp even, maybe they didn't have the time. They were all working on other things at the same time. You know, whether it was E.T. and I'm sure they were really busy with Jedi, Return of the Jedi. So, you know, it could be that, too. And, you know, also a little outside of that. I mean, Toby Hooper, who is kind of in the Spielberg camp or was, you know, Texas Chainsaw's Toby Hooper was first attached to the project to direct. And he jumped ship, I think, as early as like the pre-production stages of the film. And actually was the one who and there might have been another director attached to it either before or after Toby Hooper, but actually him leaving was what left the door open for John Carpenter to come in. So although the production, they were in production with this film for about a year, which is actually a pretty impressive amount of time. They had a little time, but maybe John Carpenter coming in was, you know, sort of the impetus for how they approached it and the budget and for how long they had. Maybe they had, you know, they really needed that year or they felt like they needed that year. So maybe they couldn't even vet it out or try to you know, rehearse various, you know, again, but, you know, again, big, big people did work on this film uncredited behind the scenes. And we'll get to that as well, as far as the practical effects go, which I, I can't wait to talk about that end of it. Yeah, you it's I'm glad you brought up Toby Hooper because Texas Chainsaw Massacre, of course, the 1974 Texas Chainsaw Massacre is one of the great horror flicks and a seminal slasher flick, basically, before that was even a a defined subgenre of horror, because we had talked about with some of them. Well, we didn't we didn't do like the shining yet, which is a little later. That's in the late 70s or I think that's even 1980. Yeah. But we did Rosemary's Baby and we'll I'm sure get to, to the exorcist and stuff like that eventually as well. But oh, yeah, those were defining. These are defining films in their respective genres, and it can't be understated. I'm no expert in film, but it can't be understated that the way we look at horror now and the way horror adapted, especially in the 80s and 90s, is just not what horror was. And 
I think that this film was trying to bridge the divide because they used to, they, I think in pre-production, they still referred to us as like a monster movie, which is not even a genre that anyone even knows today. But that was what horror really was back in the day. And so they really, it's the same thing when we talked about Alien. They really tried to bridge this gap and make it more believable and really make this interesting fusion of horror and science fiction, which I think, and we've discussed this many times, but I think those two things go together so beautifully Definitely. that why wouldn't you want to just smash them together as much as you possibly can? Right. Especially with the Arctic. I mean, when you when you throw the Arctic in there, then it really gets crazy. So, Dave, let's talk a little bit about the cast of characters now that we frame the story and we oh, know what man. it's all about. You had meant to, you had mentioned Kurt Russell, of course, the famous Kurt Russell who plays uh, McReady and or it's McReady, right? I think and, it's McReady, um, yeah. Yeah, I think they say it's McReady. And I feel like, first of all, it was, it was interesting in reading about how like he made like eight times more money than everyone else that worked on the film, which is which is awesome. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? But I feel like the, this cast of characters, I feel like they don't, this film is short compared to some other films, about 110 minutes, so not too short, but they don't really, they, this movie I think could have used a little more time to inject more character into the characters because with the exception of a few of them, like Dr. Blair who's played by the amazing Wilford Brimley, of course, <laughs> Keith David's uh, Childs is a, is a seminal character at the end, especially with the ending, which oh, we'll, God, we'll interpret yeah. in a little while. But I don't feel like, and I was actually reading some feedback or some, I guess, criticism from the time okay. that we don't really get to know the characters well or what their roles are or who they are or what they do. And so like when they start falling like dominoes, I don't really give a shit about them and 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 it's actually an interesting thing that in my, from my perspective this movie really is about just three or four people and everyone else seems to be fodder there, there's some interesting characters like the kennel the guy you know the dog handler is sure. a great interesting character and uh, there's the, the, everyone is interesting but they don't really explore it to the nth degree what do you think about the cast yeah, no, I, I could totally see your point on that. I, I did hear a lot of sort of criticism about that as far as like not getting to know the characters. And I agree with that. Outside of like Colin said, like the th three or four main quote unquote main characters, the rest of this group of a dozen or about a dozen characters, you really don't get to know them at all. You know very little about them. In fact, I had to go to the fan wiki site just to find out what everybody's role was on the research base because most of them I didn't know and they don't say but you know some of them maybe four or five or six of them you know who they are what they do or what their function is on the base but the rest of them I really didn't know so when I'm trying to fill out we like to call and I like to go character by character when we do films and I wanted to know what everybody did but I didn't know so I went to the fan wiki to find out what about at least a third of these guys that's never said but I like the I like the acting in the film. And what's also kind of cool about this, and we talked about this a little bit with Alien and maybe a couple of other films and pieces of fiction that we talked about was I like how familiar all the characters seem to each other. It seems like these guys really know each other really well. So which is kind of cool, even though you don't know them, many of them on an individual basis, you know that they work together and there's history. So when the paranoia and the distrust sets in, it speaks volumes because these guys go from being friends or being colleagues or being friendly or being very familiar to being extremely, you know, wary of one another to the point of extreme paranoia because it becomes a life or death situation. So 
Kyle, I'm going to start with Kurt Russell's character. First of all, I forgot how good he was in this movie. And it's true. He made, I think it said he made like 400000 on this movie. Now you're talking 1982 money compared, so nearly a half a million compared to a lot of these guys, a lot of these character actors, especially guys like Keith David, who come from Broadway and maybe this was like their first or second big picture that they did, a motion picture, making like forty, fifty thousand dollars So, and, you know, with nearly as much screen time in some cases as Kurt Russell, maybe not the same amount, but because Kurt Russell, Kyle, is so famous for his JB whiskey, I have here, can you hear my, my rocks glass of ice? Oh, very nice. I have a little bit, I have to approximate my, I don't have any whiskey, but I'm a scotch guy as Colin knows. So here I have my scotch. I'm going to, there we go. Hear that? Whoa. All right. That's very nice. I'm going to pour a little bit of scotch. This one's from McReady. Here, I'm going to pour it close to the mic. See if you guys could hear it. Okay. Got my little rocks glass. So as we talk about the McReady character, he's such an interesting character for me. Now, I will say that I think I mentioned it to you guys already. I listened to the commentary, which I think was originally on the Laserdisc version of the film. And it's John Carpenter and Kurt Russell discussing the movie. It's awesome. It's just the two of those guys. John Carpenter's chain-smoking cigarettes. You could hear it the entire time. And they're just <laughs> really breaking down the movie and talking about it with such passion. And again, this is John. John Carpenter is a pretty big filmography, up to even up to today. And this was like one of his favorite, if not his favorite film that he did. And he talks about it with such passion. But I love the McReady character because... Carpenter and Russell decided to give him a background that we don't necessarily get from the film. But what they wanted to do was they wanted to give him, they thought they would give him sort of this background of possibly coming from Vietnam, where he saw action as a helicopter pilot in the bush. And he's this loner character. He's obviously very cool, calm, and collected, but he's this loner character. You could see he's not... He's by himself drinking, and maybe he's suffering from some kind of PTSD. And they said, which was really striking to me, which I didn't get from the film, that he's actually a proper alcoholic when we first meet him already. And I was really intrigued by that because you know that he's the chopper pilot on the base. You know that the McCready character is, you know, he's pragmatic, he's cool, he's, he's dour, serious cold you know there's a joylessness to him i like the way his coldness fits the environment too i thought that was really i thought that was really striking you know he goes along he seems like he's right for that frigid environment but i love that they gave him this backstory that it's especially interesting to me because john carpenter thinks of this movie less of a horror film because he got a lot of shit for how you know quote unquote mean-spirited it is or was whether you agree with that or not. But he was saying, Carpenter was saying, he actually sees this more as an action film along along the lines of sci-fi, but more of an action film. And Kurt Russell, you could see him in this film as an action star, you know, as sort of an action, you know, a, a action piece. He, he brings the action to the movie and he's sort of the reluctant hero and the reluctant leader of the group because he doesn't start out as the lead. He's not the, the leader of the base. At first, he sort of becomes appointed that. So, and he's a great character to bring us along in the movie because 
not only is Kurt Russell's acting really good, he's very entertaining. He does almost have that. He has sort of a, a heaviness, but he also has that sort of action hero quality that makes you want to watch. And I think he's actually kind of fun to watch in this movie. And there's not a lot of fun and levity in this movie. And I'm not even sure he's trying to give a fun performance. It just works for me that way. What do you think, Kyle? What do you think of this character and Kurt Russell's performance as McGreedy? Yeah, he's fascinating. I mean, uh, first of all, Kurt Russell is awesome. And I, I don't know how anyone could possibly he is, think he anything really. less of Kurt Russell than that. Yeah, he fits in this role. And it's interesting because I kind of saw the alcoholism because he does he does this really weird thing that actually always frustrated me with the movie whenever I've seen it, which is when he's playing the chess computer, he like pours his whiskey <laughs> I love that into the computer, like just ruins it, like fries the computer. I'm like, what are you? T- what are you, you know, doing? Like, Jesus Christ, the hell are you doing? But in knowing that he's an alcoholic and that people and the familiarity, like you said, that everyone's bred with one another in this particular group of friends or this group of colleagues, they still don't really seem to be that concerned about him flying the chopper, which to me says a lot about his skill level, I guess, or the trust that he's engendered amongst these people, because they know he's probably been drinking. And also they they refer to the really incredible weather that is going on that would be really bad for a chopper. And he yet he still goes up and yet they still trust him and he still does his thing or whatever. So he's like a, he's the hero. In a, in a lot of ways. Sure. Now, d- depending on the way you interpret the ending, of course, maybe he's not the hero. <laughs> right. I, I don't know. But nonetheless, I really think that obviously not surprising the movie runs through him. And with such a large ensemble cast, like you said, where you can't even really identify who all these people are, or what they do in this in this uh, military base or in this research base. He's the one that really stands out. And he does stand out along with Dr. Blair and Childs only for to me, only because we see them the most I think I, I would have to like I'm sure someone has all of the and some nerdy wiki or something oh, they have sure. all the, the time on screen or whatever it is for the, the characters but with such an ensemble you need a strong hook because otherwise you get really lost in the ensemble and so to have someone that bubbles to the top when you think of this this cast is like more than twice as big as I think the alien cast and I'm only bringing that up only because they're films from the same era. And we just did an episode on this not too long ago or on that movie not too long ago. But sure. if you think about Sigourney Weaver, she's like a really powerful character, but they didn't even really need that in that movie because it's much easier to wrap your mind around who the characters are and what they do. And I, I guess I'm a little confused why they made the ensemble so big. Like you could imagine a situation where there's five of them or six of them at the most and really gotten to know them and the movie I don't think would have suffered wouldn't have suffered in fact it would have gotten way more intriguing because with the numbers being much lower whoever was infected or was being mimicked by the alien would have been a much wider question to ask and made people double and triple back on mm. where everyone was and who they were with and stuff like that so I was just I'm just I, I again I can't speak to the the John Campbell book who goes there and maybe it's the same thing in that. And obviously the 1951, the thing from another world, I can't speak to that either. But I just wonder, like, what was the point of having so many characters when you don't really get to know them? And so, again, when they die off, you don't really care. It's not really that weighty, in my opinion. Maybe some people were really torn up when the kennel operator was killed. or something. But <laughs> right. like, you don't really get to know. You don't really get to know them. No. And so I feel like that could have only been mitigated by a longer runtime, which I think they could have gotten away with and they tried to get away with. And again, 
constrained by budget and all that kind of stuff. They were not able to get those scenes in or better yet, keep it at 110 minutes, but just remove some of these characters so that you can because all it requires is a, a throwaway line or two or even like an activity that each of them is doing that I think would have given it away. Like if someone's a botanist or something, just show them fiddling with a plant. Yes. And that basically explains it. Absolutely. So what, I don't know. Maybe, maybe this is a hang up only I have. No, I but. hear you. I, th- I think it's a hard point to argue with. I mean, first of all, they do. Many of them do feel very expendable. So you don't feel a lot of emotion necessarily. You mostly feel grossed out because it's so gory. But, you know, you, you, one of, many of the characters are treated as expendable. The only reason I could really see them having the number that they had in close to a dozen or whatever it is, is that a larger number is that it would seem to it would seem more realistic to outfit a research post with that many people. But you could also argue, do you really need the assistant mechanic? Do you really need the assistant biologist? And we'll get to all those characters. But the other thing is, too, like you're saying, to argue your point, to argue you know, along the same lines as you are, Kyle, having less would also add to the sense of peril because it's less possibility, it's possibility for less good guys in the end, less help for escaping the situation or less help for fighting the monster. So having less people would actually add to the sense of dread and peril and all that kind of stuff. Not to say you could actually, you know, explore some of the characters a little further and flesh them out, as you said. So I totally, I think that's a, that's a really, really good point. I didn't think of that actually, which is a really, that's a really great point. Yeah. It could raise the horror a little bit, but that's just, that's just for me. But let's talk a little bit about, I mean, we've been referring to it so much, the practical effects and and the gore and all of this. Barrett Boswell wrote into us. He said, hey, Moriarty bros, can anyone think of a better practical effects movie when it comes to the alien transformations? There are not really any I can think of that stand the test of time that this one does. Which creature do you appreciate more or find more horrific? The thing when it is trying to absorb the dogs or the head of the Norris copy separating off and growing legs? Mm. One of the greatest movies of all time. This Patreon is the smartest money I spend each month. Thank you so much. Oh, I didn't you. actually add that in. That's He didn't say that. That's not just me adding that. In. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Barrett. We appreciate you. I'm really excited to talk about this because I don't know a great deal about practical effects. I actually did a fireside chat with a practical effects artist, and we talked a little bit about it with Alien. But as far as I know, and I could be wrong about this, a guy named Rob Botton was the guy that was in charge of this, the practical effects. It's Botine, apparently. But did you know that it's it's pronounced Botine? You would have oh, never. Oh, Botine. Oh no, you would never know no, that by looking know. at the name. It's B O T I N N, right? B O T T I N. I have it written down, but it okay. might be. I don't know. No, you might be right. No, but I would have never known that. I mean, obviously, would have never known that. And I didn't. He's apparently not that famous. I guess he did the movies I saw in his filmography that stood out to me where he did RoboCop, both RoboCops, well, two RoboCops, and then Total Recall. Yeah, but. This seemed like a really demanding film, and it's really, I think, super impressive. It's funny because I don't in, in reading even a lot of the commentary, like I was saying, a lot of the criticism early on and what people think about it. And even hearing you talk about the gore and the blood, Ugh. I guess I just have different expectations because I didn't find it and I still don't find it that gory because I think the reason is, is because I guess you could say it literally is gory. Like it literally oh, is it's gory. gory. Yeah, there's but. I don't really look at gore in the supernatural sense, like with an alien or whatever. I like it would be much harder for me to watch someone's throat get cut open in a movie. Right. Than any than literally anything that right. happens. You do see movie. that too. You see that in this movie too, though. 
right? With the guy at the research base, right? Is that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, when his head's like, when his head's like, oh, at the Norwegian research base. Yeah, yeah when yeah, his head's yeah. like almost cut off. Yeah, but even then, like, I guess what I'm saying is I find realistic gore in films from realistic sources much more difficult. Like, a, a really, they don't really show you much, but if you think about Saving Private Ryan when... Oh, man. The 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 Nazi is fighting like the the dude in the room and they have the knife. Oh, that's brutal and he scene. and he ends up killing the guy Ugh. and you just hear it go into him and he's staring at him. What a when he's doing it to watch. Ugh. That is much harder to watch. Sure. Not only because of the Nazism and all that, but just from a violence standpoint, that is a much harder scene to watch than anything in this movie for me. Yeah, I see what you're saying by that. Sure. So I think when you see like I'm really impressed by how realistic all these bodies look and the split open face and the the weird limbs growing out of bodies and stuff it's fucking awesome but i don't find it like unsettling and i'm not sure that i ever did although i'm not i'm not really a squeamish kind of person but i'm wondering if you can talk to me a little bit about about your feelings with this well you know what's funny kyle what when do you remember how old you were when you we talked about this a little bit before but do you remember around how old you were when you first saw this movie I was probably a teenager, okay. like in, in middle right. school, high school, something like that. Okay, yeah. and you not—you are decidedly less squeamish than I am. Like you always have been. You—it do, doesn't bother yeah, you. You actually true. remind me of Helene when it comes to that. She's less bothered by gore and all like, especially when it comes to films and fiction and all that kind of stuff than I am. I'm really sensitive when it comes to that stuff, and nothing's really changed. I'm still the same way as when I was a kid, but for the effects, for the practical effects in this movie, I really was intrigued by. Rob Bottin because I initially saw him on one of the making of documentaries, an older one, and when he was still pretty young and he was so animated and so passionate when he was being interviewed about, it, I was like, I got to find out more about this guy. And it turns out he's extremely young on the film. He worked, he was 23 years old and he was in charge of all the practical effects on this movie. He had met, apparently he had met John Carpenter a little earlier 1980, I guess, when John Carpenter did The Fog, the film The Fog, which is one of Helene's favorite horror movies, actually. I don't remember it. I remember watching it when I was younger, but I don't remember it that well. But he's Yeah, sort I, don't, of, I don't think I've even seen it. Yeah, it's, it's good. It's creepy. It's a creepy one, but I don't remember it pound for pound. But apparently he sort of ingratiated himself with John Carpenter and sort of begged onto the film, onto The Fog, and did some stuff. And what's interesting about Botine is he's a protege of Rick Baker's. And Rick Baker, being a famous visual effects artist, practical visual effects artist, especially in associated with, we know in, in nerddom circles, know Rick Baker from the Star Wars movies, the first trilogy of Star Wars movies. And he was a protege. Robotine was a protege of Rick Baker. And he actually did, he actually was uncredited. He actually, as an apprentice, I guess he was still apprenticing under Rick Baker in I guess he was 17 or 18 years old and he did a bunch of stuff for apparently for the most Eisley Cantina in Star Wars although oh, he's cool. uncredited oh, cool. as a really young guy I mean he was still in high school and then he did the howling when he was 20 or 21 and then did the fog and then he was still a really young guy when he was in charge of the practical effects for the thing and he's so passionate about it and apparently he worked again production was a really long time on this movie let's say he worked for 10 or 11 months straight he says he worked seven days a week for all that length of time and actually was had to be hospitalized due to exhaustion. And Stan Winston had to come in and actually do a couple of things while Botine was in the hospital. 
and because he just ran himself ragged. And I love how inventive and clever and passionate and imaginative his practical effects are in the film. But you're right. There's a, there is a sort of cartoony aesthetic to them. There's, there's something cartoony about them as slimy and bloody and oozing pus. And you see the viscera and the gleaming jelly and the pulsing wounds and the throbbing guts and the squirting and all that kind of stuff. As much as you see all that kind of stuff, and it's all in there and it's very technical for practical effects. They they went through to great lengths to orchestrate all these moving parts and tearing pieces and all this kind of stuff. But it is it do, it does still kind of have a cartoony aesthetic to it. And that's really interesting, but what I love about it is that I guess the public, the movie-going public, just wasn't ready for it in 1982. And people were really up in arms about it. Not just the movie-going public, who apparently a lot of them left the theater once the initial, I guess once the dog kennel scene, which is like the first, is that really the first? That is the first real gory bit in the movie, as far as I remember. I think so. Yeah, other than like the gun, the other than like the gunfight and stuff. Yeah. Right, Exactly. The people just couldn't take it and were leaving the theaters, but not only the movie going public, but critics, film critics as well, were really panning the movie and saying how mean-spirited it was and how over-the-top the gore was and that it was just sort of a showcase for what they could do with these cartoony practical effects and how you know senseless it was and how brainless it was. And I really disagree with that. And that's coming from somebody who's not a fan of gore, but... The, the fact that they used this in the film and that it was a vehicle for showing how insidious and how horrifying this monster was and how insidious this alien was, was really, it spoke volumes to me. And I think that's why it works for me. And I think that's really why it disturbed me so much as a kid is that it seemed like this thing was just so... It did. There was a mean spirited nature to it, but it felt like it was the monster that was mean spirited. It felt like it was the monster was going to do anything to survive. It was this, you know, this heartless, soulless thing that would just had to kill. It had this really kill or be killed mentality that I think comes through in the practical effects. And again, you know, it's it also harkens back to a time where they had to do all these things practically, and it's not just the execution. But it's the brainstorming and the problem solving behind it that's so intriguing. And I think that's really what makes it hold up for me. And the other really intriguing thing is you hear John Carpenter talk about it in retrospect, how many of the times, you know, Botine and his crew came in with something and Carpenter was like, what the hell is this? Like, this looks terrible. This looks like this is never going to work. And for whatever reason... You know, once it was filmed, Botine knew enough just to do the right things that it was going to still maintain this level of believability when it was filmed. And it held up so well. And Gerald Carpenter was really surprised by that a lot of times because it looked so, to his naked eye, it looked, a lot of it looked really wonky. But on film, it really works. And I think a lot of it holds up, some of it doesn't. But I love that it's an aesthetic and it harkens back to the era and that it was done with such great passion and such great ingenuity. That's why it works for me so well, I think. Yeah, I think that 
first of all, because you had mentioned this a few times and I had been reading about this again with all the criticism like that. I don't know what people ex- like. What the fuck did they expect? I don't know. Like, like, what do you think is going to what do you think? This is going to be like a, a honky dory adventure in the Arctic wait in the Antarctic wasteland with a, an alien species. Like, what did you want this to be? I, I that that's see, that's the conf- the confusing thing and why I think this is so fascinating. This era of film, especially in this genre, is so fascinating in the 70s and into the 80s is it was so undefined that I don't think people really had any idea what they wanted. And that's why I'm so fascinated by I'm not fascinated that people hated the movie. I think that's fine. I don't I mean, that, uh, that's believable to me, but it's it's weird that over time people didn't hate it anymore. And it's like, well, what happened? Like, why? Yeah. What happened? Like, I, 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 that's just weird. Like, I don't think the movie is a, an anywhere close to being bad. So like that people had such this visceral, I guess, pardon the pun, but this visceral reaction to it is interesting. And and I agree with you with um the practical effects. It's what I, I actually rewound a few scenes, which I usually don't do to look at things a couple of times, because it wasn't only that these things looked interesting or looked good or looked gory and real, but it's the way that the things popped at the right time or slid out or whatever the case might be to make it all work. I thought it was really interesting. And there was this one scene where I think the creature's like laying on a table in Dr. Blair's office where this green stuff's like coming out of him and things are popping and the, and the camera's like panning over it. Right. And I was like, wow, this is really cool. Not only that they made it, but then like the film had to be just right. And I, ca- I imagine this was like a one take sort of situation and it all it all worked. And, and, and it does look a little campy and a little weird, but that's like that's the genre of the of the film. I don't really know what else you would have possibly wanted out yeah. of it. Yeah. Know? Well, Dave, we brought this scene up earlier. And so I feel like Hunter Holiday's inquiry from Patreon.com slash Collins last stands a good way to segue into this. He says, first things first, Colin, I listen to a lot of podcasts and watch a lot of YouTube, and your voice is the only one my wife can stand to listen to. She's even gone as far as to mention your voice being that of a musky angel. What the hell does that mean? Wow. My God. A musky angel. Isn't isn't like musky like the the natural scent of a man like musk? That's what I think of. So I'm a musky angel. That's not that doesn't sound like a bad thing. Might want to keep an eye on your wife. So so keep up those beautiful vocal cords. I will. Thank you so much for your kind words. Now I have to. Now I feel like I need to talk like a radio host, like Casey Kasem or something. (laughs) My question has to do with the first scene that you're faced with the monster in the dog kennel. I remember seeing that scene for the first time in college, high off my ass, and it still haunts my dreams to this day. The special effects hold up as scary to this day. What was your first reaction to or memory of those horrifying first glimpses? Thanks, guys. So, Dig, you brought up this scene, and this is one of those scenes that's often brought up in contemporaneous criticism and by other people that I guess don't like the film or talk about the gore as being this outrageously gory scene. And I think it's a really interesting scene in that you see what the alien is capable of with your own two eyes for the first time, which is really cool. But I again, I, I look at this and I guess I'm just seeing it differently than everyone. Maybe I'm just a jaded old man now or something, but. <laughs> I, I I watched it. I watched it just last night in preparation and I watched that scene. And I'm like, this isn't very scary. I mean, it's 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 definitely and that's just my opinion, of course, but it's definitely got a lot of thrill in it. And it's definitely got a lot of weight to it about what's happening and what they're going to do about it. But the alien itself and the mutations that were occurring, I don't find I guess I just don't find it that scary because, as you said, it's it's almost got this 
cartoonish patina over it where it's so supernatural. It's not like Alien, right? Like Alien's fucking scary. I, in my opinion, like that's that's scary because it's like this perfect made for combat biological machine, basically. Yes. And you can imagine that something like that exists. But with this, I'm like, I don't know. It it, it it seems a little weird to me. It's a really memorable scene because, again, I feel bad for the dogs and the dogs start freaking out and and all of that. And also, like I said earlier, the kennel kind of keeper, the dog keeper is like an interesting character. I like how he's soft spoken. He's like huge and soft spoken, but he doesn't really you would think he'd be like one of the crazy guys there, but he's not. Right. But what do you think about this particular scene? You know what's funny about this guy? I just thought of. Do you remember that kid? Every we all know this kid in like junior high school or high school, who's really into like monsters and monster films, and he reads like Fangoria magazine, and he likes to draw crazy, zany monsters and aliens and UFOs, and he's into Cannibal Corpse and Guar and all that kind of stuff. You know the guy I'm talking right. about? The, yeah, yeah. He, he they they might be. It's like a little. They might be into some of the uh, Lovecraftian yeah, kind of stuff go. as well. Perfectly said. Right. Perfectly said. That the a lot of these monsters and creature designs actually smack to me of like what you know those drawings that kid in school's drawings like brought to life, and it makes sense because you know Rob Bottin was a young guy, and a lot of you know the, I don't know if you ever saw his drawings so the monsters in this film. That's a lot what they look like. You know, these imaginative, crazy, inspired things that were just brewing in this kid's imagination like his entire life. That's what these feel like to me. And I think that's where the cartooniness, quote unquote, comes from. But I think it's a really disturbing scene for a lot of people because it's the first, you know, blood, guts, viscera scene in the movie that we see. And it's happening to these innocent dogs. Nobody likes to see dogs getting murdered. You know, these innocent dogs getting murdered. And I love the fact that they talk about this half wolf that they had on the picture. His name was Jed. And, you know, he had a handler, a real life handler. And I think he was half wolf, half Alaskan Malamute, I'm assuming. And, you know, it was an interesting dog because they said it wasn't really used to acting around people and it had a lot to learn. And what the, I think the actor who plays, who's the dog handler? So let me, let me go find his name for you guys. He, he the the actor who plays the dog handler character. Oh, the character of Clark Richard Mazer. He was saying that this Jed Wolf, this half wolf, on set was so interesting because they learned the handler would tell the crew and the cast like wolves aren't like dogs. Like if they're disturbed by something, they're not going to bark or growl. They just get like this look over them. <laughs> so he said, if you he had to train the cast and the crew, this guy. You know, if Jed ever gets this look, this glazed over look, like, let me know, because that means he's disturbed or concerned about something and he's worried about something. And then that's when a wolf could be dangerous. But you're not going to get a warning like a dog. And he said it was so interesting to have this dog on set because he would often get that glazed over look, you know, because he wasn't used to being around so many people. And they said it was kind of frightening because the dog would just like get this look about him and it'd be like, dude, like to get the handle, like, dude, he's doing that thing, you know? (laughs) Is he going to jump on us? Like, is he going to jump our bows? Like, what's happening here? Yeah, he's going to sick you. He's going to sick, sick balls. Sick balls. (laughs) (laughs) What is that? Is that from uh, Stand By Me? That's from Stand By Me. Yeah. Oh, we have to put that one. Sick balls. Sick balls. Sick balls. Sick balls. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> but you know stuff. what? It's not really. I agree with you though, Kyle. It's not really like. It, you know, apparently they had the humane, which was actually kind of interesting for a movie this early. I didn't know this was a thing. Like they had the humane society on set to make sure, like the you know, they didn't, you know, the animals weren't abused in any way and all that kind of stuff. But. It's actually an interesting scene because I like the way it's shot and the way it's cut because I like to see the other dogs, you know, the other huskies and whatever's in there, the Samoyeds and the whatever the sled dogs are, the Shiba Inus or whatever. The, the way they're reacting to it is actually really, it's really chilling because they know something's wrong with it and then, you know, it sort of pops up. And actually, the scene actually reminds me of what anime would later become, especially like horror anime and tentacle anime. It actually really reminds me of that. It almost seems to have really inspired the tentacle genre of anime. This yeah. movie. This you movie. know all about the tentacle the tentacle genre, don't you? I know a little bit about the tentacle genre. I'm not gonna lie. I'm not gonna lie yeah, to you. But that probably I've seen those tentacles to- go into all sorts of orifices <laughs> in various uh, film and TV Who shows. Who hasn't? Who hasn't, my friend? <laughs> but Holy it seemed Lord. to have a big, you know, a big impact. And again, like you said earlier, I like to see all the little this was a really cool showcase scene for seeing all the various parts of the practical effects orchestrated. You know, the whipping tendrils and the spurting bits and the bits opening up. That has this that this one has at the end of it has that sort of the blob with the eyes that sort of open up. And it's sort of like it's sort of trying to approximate the dogs, but it's like in the process of morphing. So it's this horrific it's in this sort of horrific middle ground of not being a dog and not being the monster. It's somewhere in between. It's, it's actually quite gross. And I saw some analyzation of it. Like you, they say now with the Blu-ray that you could see like the dog's skull actually fall out before the monster, like the flower petal head opens up and you could see that that thing right before they blowtorch it, right before the Keith David character blowtorches it, that sort of, um, pod comes out and then opens up into like a flower petal thing they said that's all made out of dog tongues so it's very it's really thoughtful the way it's it's horrific and disgusting but it's really thoughtful the way it's put together and i liked it actually added a lot of dimension hearing about all the things that went into it because that's not necessarily up on the screen you know that's how much tlc was put into these practical effects and that's what i that's what i dig about it it's a little i think that you know, I've heard the the argument that the practical effects throughout this film are distracting to the movie. But I disagree. I think it's actually part it probably would be distracting, but this movie actually feels like a little bit like it's the style of the movie. Like we're waiting for the next horrific practical effects set piece and I think that's just the style of the film. I think it that really works for me. Maybe it's because, you know, now in a in a modern day perspective, we could analyze it that way. Maybe it didn't hold up that way in 1982, but I like that about it that it feels like a little bit like you said, a little campy, and that's the style of it. And, you know, the dog scene, yeah, really really memorable scene. Really memorable scene. Disturbed the shit out of me when I was a kid. For probably, you know what? Probably talk about the first really gory movie that I saw, the first human dismemberment. It was probably the first time I saw an animal like murdered on screen, which is really, you know, besides like things like, I don't know, 
old yeller or like a Disney made for TV movie where the dog dies right. and the kid's sad. Like to see an actual animal murdered in like cold blood, it, it, that's that's a big deal. You know, I think that's what bothered people about this movie that it seemed so heartless. And, you know, I, I, I really don't see it that way though. I think, I think that's what this, that's what makes it so horrific. It's like Michael Myers. It's like this heartless, cold-blooded, ruthless killer. That's what this creature is. Yeah, it's different. It's easy to contrast it with Alien, which came out a little bit before this, in the sense that we we figure out, or they talk about, especially with later with Waylon Wutani and all that kind of stuff, with um, why they're going after the alien and who the alien is, and right. this perfect fighting creature and stuff like that. But in the thing, you don't really, and maybe it's expanded on in the video game sequel or whatever. Uh, Michael Steinmetz wrote into us about the video game sequel that came out mm. in, I think, 2002 on PS2 and Xbox. I've never played it. PS2 game. Uh, right. Carpenter, he says, it apparently endorsed it, which is interesting. But he did, yeah. Maybe they go into it in some other different uh, venues. Into, But what I think is so interesting, this movie is almost like nihilistic yes. by design, which I think is like really cool because we don't have any, this alien has no reason to even be here. We have no idea why he's there. We have no idea why, it, why he crashed that. See, that's the stuff that I'm always fascinated about. Like when we talk about the Roswell crash or whatever in the forties, I think happened in 47 or happened in quotes in 47 right. is like, these things are so sophisticated that they come to earth and crash. Like th- that's, that's always been the, the, the weird thing to me. <laughs> okay. So this alien this alien thing flies. God knows where it's been. It comes to Earth. It crashes for some reason. Its ship is disabled. It's frozen for 100,000 years or more. It comes awake. We have no idea why it's there, like what its intent is. And it's different than the xenomorphs and alien because they don't seem to be the aliens themselves, as far as I understand. And, and you know a lot more about alien lore than I do. Big A alien lore. Right. Is... The xenomorphs are not the creators of their ships and all those kinds of things. They're they're like a shepherded race, I think, of aliens. So these things are also technologically sophisticated and all that. And the only time thing this thing is trying to do is like survive. It has no intent. Right. So the nihilistic the nihilism of the of the movie is like at the very core of all, of of most horror. When you really think about it, it's either like something like I was recently watching Scream. I hadn't seen it in years. Great okay. movie, by the way. That is a great and movie. it's awesome. It's a really great movie. And even the intention of the murderer in the in Scream is not really like concise. It's nihilistic. Like they have the MacGuffin with the guy that works in the the horror film store or the, the video store who's like obsessed with horror films and it's not really him. Right. And so you think that that's like the the justification for it or whatever. And I, so I think one of the cool things about 82's The Thing and, and Carpenter's rendition of it is it is mean. But that's kind of like the situation they find themselves in. Like, I, again, I don't that kind of criticism ring, r- rings really hollow to me because I just don't know what you expect there, this This thing is hor- horrific. Now, I think Carpenter could have taken another tact with the film, which would have been interesting, but it wouldn't have been his style, which would have been don't show anything at all until yes. until the very end or just insinuate that these things are happening. But because of the transformative nature of the creature, they really do have to show it being in point A, point B, and point C. Otherwise, it's not telegraphed to the audience what's even going on. And so I think the film would just become confusing. So yeah. I think they were caught in a situation where you had to kind of show it. Sure. And so they did. And they did show it. They did indeed, my friend. Joseph Mendoza wrote into us and said, is there a more stressful scene in cinema than when Kurt Russell's character 
has everyone lined up and oh, burns each blood sample one at this. a time to determine who has been possessed. Now, I really love this Such solution. It's cool because it's an interesting lo-fi solution for them to figure out what's happening here. And it's just a hypothesis. And I, that's what I love about the whole scene, too, is that when they're burning, they they assume certain people are infected and they burn their blood. And then it seems like it's not even working. And they lull you into that sense of security. And then suddenly it works and it freaks you the fuck out, oh, which I think is really cool. So the good. thing jumps out of the out of the play. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about about that scene, because that, that scene for the literal bloodiness of it, I think, is really important to the story. Absolutely. Yeah. We're talking about the infamous blood test scene. Apparently, it was the scene in the script or the screenplay that sort of drew Carpenter to the Carpenter to the film, and you could see, like you said, you could see all the love that they put into the shooting, the cinematography, and the timing of this scene is just really unbelievably done. It's so well crafted, and so basically, they get the idea that this thing, whatever it is is completely you know is out for complete self-preservation and kurt russell sort of convinces in quotes the rest of the surviving crew that they had in order to find out who's infected who's currently infected that he's going to take this hot wire he's going to take a blood sample from each of the crew and he's going to put it in a little petri dish and then he's going to take a hot wire and burn the blood and if the blood reacts in other words be that being a part of the creature reacts in a negative way and tries to get away from the hot wire, then that person is infected. And yeah, just what Colin said, he's going through the crew one by one. And finally, who was, who was the one who, that was infected? It was, um, hold on. I got to go back and find the names, but one of the, one of the characters are, are infected. Kurt Russell puts the hot wire in and the blood sort of jumps out of the Petri dish and tries to get away which is just uh, and and the men's reaction. It's one of, again, it's one of those scenes where you put yourself in that space and John Carpenter was like, you know, saying in the, one of the commentaries I was listening to like he saw that as like a personal hell. Like you know like you're dealing with this thing that's this unspeakable thing that we can't possibly understand this monster whose actual whose actual blood is reacting in an adverse way uh, in an adverse way to harm which is just I, I i had never heard of anything like that before i don't know that i still have something to hold this up to as far as you know just complete originality and just complete imaginative horror it's so and it's a great character study if if you do get little bits of personality and stuff like that. This is a good scene for that. And you know what else I love about this scene, Kyle, that I realized the very last time I watched the film that you talk about the McCready character, the Kurt Russell character as being sort of this cool, calm and collected. He's real. he's going to get the job done and they turn to him for his leadership and his sort of icy cold pragmatism. But what I love is that, each one of their names is written in Sharpie on a piece of medical tape, and then that's taped to the Petri dish. The handwriting is so neat and precise. It doesn't look like it's scribbled on. There's no anxiety behind it. And I, I don't know if that was on purpose. And then that could even, I, I thought about it later. Those pieces of tape could have even been taken from the broken blood bags 
from I guess that refrigerator unit or whatever that they find that the right. all the men's blood has been taken, has been destroyed, has been contaminated. But I love that little character touch if if indeed it was intentional that you know, Kurt Russell just calmly scrawled their names onto this tape. It doesn't look like he's in any kind of, you know, he's just very, he's unflappable. And I just, I just love that about him in this scene. I mean, this scene is probably the most, there's a lot of beautiful cinematography in this movie. I especially love the exterior shots with the blue lighting. We'll talk, try to talk about that a little later if we have time. But this scene is probably the most memorable for me. And just that I had never seen anything like it. What do you? What's your take? A big takeaway from this scene? It's probably one of the most famous scenes in the film. Yeah, it's it's awesome. I I think that this is where the movie really reaps, and and it's a rare moment because it's such a show me movie as opposed to a psychological movie where it reaps psychological horror. Yeah. Because you don't know. First of all, you don't know who's infected. It's not clear whether the people who are infected know who's infected. So in other words. There's like a meta layer of everyone like wondering if their blood's going to react, but then you're wondering if they really know their blood's going to react. So there's this whole metagame involved in the scene as well, which I think is interesting because you don't know if they're aware. You don't know if they're self-aware of it. And then it contrasts, I think, nicely with the more visceral, gory horror of the movie or what everyone considers gory. And I guess is, like I said, literally gory. Right. So I think it, it combines all these elements really artfully. And that's what makes that scene so memorable. Because it's not only, it's not like slasher fair at this point. This is really about like the survival of, of the rest of them. And when it starts to become like really, as I said early in our recording, it, be, it becomes existential. Because what's so interesting about the movie to me above all else is the existential threat that they're facing. It's not Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's right. not Friday the 13th. It's not even something that's like really supernatural like Nightmare on Elm Street that's still limited to this group of people or whatever, or it or anything like that. It's, this is like a thing that can destroy the world. And I do think it's funny. I think Wilford Brimley is the one, Dr. Blair's character is the one that runs that really primitive computer model about what the thing will do and how it's like eating up all, you know, eating up various life forms and how long it will take like 26,000 days or whatever it says to, to mutate and take over. Like, I've always wondered, I'm like, what are you feeding this computer that it can even know? Any right. of this information? <laughs> yeah, but okay. Right. That's that's weird. I, I that that seems really weird. But I like that this scene plays with you a little bit in a way. It, 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 we were talking about The Shining earlier, the film, right? Where the Kubrick film, where it's, I look at it and I'm like, this is interesting in the sense that this is a psychological hor- this is a psychological horror movie until like it gets fucking crazy at the end, right? And then it becomes like a real horror, like a slasher horror film, and you kind of feel like the the exact inverse in this scene, which is cool. You know, it throws you for a little bit of a loop, which I like. Right. So now, Dagan, William Meaner wrote into us. He actually wrote in about something you had mentioned. He says, I recently showed the thing to my son. Mm. He enjoyed it, but didn't really understand the ending until I explained the ambiguity of it. We'll talk about that in a little while. Yeah. Anyway, I would like to give a shout out to cinematographer, the great Dean Cundy. How he never won an Oscar is beyond me. Only one nomination, which was for Who Framed Roger Rabbit. He also did most of Carpenter's films, Jurassic Park and the Back to the Future trilogy. I think his, so we've we've we did Jurassic Park and we did all the Back to the Future movies. So we've talked a lot about his stuff. Sure. I think his incredible lighting techniques really set the mood for the film. They are they are 
I'm sorry, they also enhance how great the effects are. I could go on, but I'll leave you to with it thoughts or comments about Dean or his work. It's funny you mentioned it because there are a few things that are interesting about the way this movie shot, which I noticed, which was, first of all, it's really claustrophobic and I really like that. Now, that's not necessarily a cinematographical, uh, cinematography, cinematographic, cinematography choice, cinematography. Yeah, you go. What would it be? Cinematographical? What is the word? Cinematographic. There you go. I guess it would be. Cinematographic. Yeah, there, there we go. you go. Holy moly. That's I like Colin's brain that. actually working I in real time. That. <laughs> that's like my brain working in real time. I don't think it's necessarily a choice because you're in the Antarctic. Everything's rare. It's hard. You're building things into the ground, the permafrost and all that kind of stuff. Everything's going to be tight. You have to heat everything. But nonetheless, the, the corridor is being sterile, concrete, thin, low, uh, ceilings, all of those kinds of things, I think add so much to the horror of the film because not only do you have nowhere to go, this is something you brought up earlier when we were talking about the Arctic or the Antarctic setting, which was yeah. there's nowhere to go. Everything's dead. There's not even anything. So like, I, I love the example you used, or at least you were going there where it's like, if you're lost in the woods and you, even if you, there's like only inedible mushrooms and trees, like there's things that are alive right. around you, right? Like these things are alive there's nothing anywhere around you. So not only is there a really foreboding environment around you, but then when you're inside, it doesn't really feel very safe. Like I said, they make this really cozy scenario turn like really claustrophobic really quickly. And I think that the cinematography adds to that, but I don't, I'm not filmed or schooled enough on film to know the techniques or anything like that, that he was using or what this guy was doing, but it really shows through. And I think you said it earlier too, the way blue contrasts with oh, white and beautiful. arctic stuff is just it's just brilliant it's the same kind of feeling i get from the green contrast against a blue sky like it's just one of those things that that works and i loved it i i love that so do you have anything else to say about the cinematography yeah i mean I, it's it's a great thing to touch on real quick i we talked about the blue lighting i think that visually from this movie first of all john carpenter is a great cameraman he's great in lens he's great with framing shots he's great with creating shots uh juxtaposing shots editing he's really a great visual storyteller and not all directors have that not all directors are that's not their strong suit but that is carpenter's strong suit and also it's important to note that this movie was largely storyboarded by a guy named mike plug who is a great comic book artist and worked also uh, largely in animation, especially later on in the 70s, but a great, really renowned comic book artist and a great visual storyteller, a great sequential storyteller. And the cinematography capitalizes on that. And the cinematography itself, though, is so beautiful. You have those gorgeous glacial vistas that we talked about, really majestic, cold. I think it really works so well for this movie. But yeah, again, those the night scenes. John Carpenter talks about this in one of the commentaries, how in awe he was of a lot of those night exterior shots and how satisfied he was with the work because what they did was they took a lot of blue lighting that was actually airport runway lighting and they lit the base, the exterior of this base, of this outpost with that lighting and not only the blue light itself and the wide shots, but the way that blue light reflected off of the buildings and off of the ice and off of the snow mounds and all that kind of stuff was really, really gorgeous, very rich color. And you're talking about, I guess this was, I'm, I'm assuming this was shot on 35 millimeter film. 
back then. So to have that sort of rich, almost digital quality color was really, I found myself like really captivated by that light. And I almost felt like a bug, like being transfixed by a, like and mesmerized by like a bug zapper. You know, I couldn't stop looking at it. And when I heard, it's just so gorgeous to look at that deep, rich blue. And when I heard Carpenter talk about it, I was so ha- glad to hear him say the same thing because it actually adds a warmth to the movie, especially in the second half of the film when you have all this exteriors. And yeah, you can't, this movie, I think this movie, that's why, again, I, I'm surprised to hear how critically panned this movie was in every way, that people didn't at least talk about the cinematography and Dean Kundi and all that kind of stuff because it's really quite gorgeous. It's it, it's really quite a work of art. And it's so funny and it shows the bias of the filmmaking community and the academy and all that kind of stuff when they just don't like a genre or they just don't think a filmmaker is up to a certain ilk. And they just kind of throw it all together. They throw the entire movie under that and sort of penalize the whole thing as a whole instead of at least singling out something that is really striking. And I think you could say the same thing, Kyle, not to not to jump ship if you're not ready to stop talking about this yet, but I think you could say the same thing about Ennio Marconi's soundtrack for the film. No, I, I was going to I was going to bring that up next. So let's go right into it. OK. Perfect. All right. Yeah. So what did you want to what did you want to talk about when it came to that? I just think it's so. Again, I'm not an expert. I'm not an expert in many, many things, oh, I guess, because I keep saying that. But but there's such a telltale. I mean, this is the sound that Carpenter is really credited with, but it's not obviously him making the music. But it's the stuff like that. When you watch the intro of Stranger Things. Yeah. That, that's Carpenter. Yeah. And really what the, what people mean by that is that this it's this Morricone, a Morricone guy that has this these crescendoing movements with synth and all these kinds of things that just work really well and are so telltale and are so obviously what what Stranger Things most famously most recently was inspired by oh, in terms perfect, of its intro perfectly sequence like uh, obviously yeah I love it I mean I actually think that I love the soundtrack and I'm not always tuned into the soundtrack with a lot of films unless they really come to the forefront like I'm playing Fallen Order the Star Wars game right now and I'm paying actually a lot of attention to the soundtrack because or the, the the score because of the fact that it's John Williams-esque. Anyway, I don't know. I don't know that John Williams did the score for that particular film, but you pay attention when it's really good or you pay attention to when it really fits. And in this specific film and in these types of films, the score is so important. And so I really love the way the music frames the entire story. Yes. And I think it's I think it's beautifully done. Me too. Yeah, absolutely. It really works. It's one of those it's one of those weird soundtracks for a movie. I heard somebody say it and it's so dead on that you can't listen to the soundtrack on its own. You know, you can't pop it on. I'm sure it was available on vinyl and everything back in the day, but it would be harder it would be sort of a tough listen. But like you said, it frames the movie so well. It complements the movie so well. And you know, it has it's very it's understated. The score is understated. It's downbeat and subdued. Obviously, a little dreary. It works for the movie, which really works for the film. And there's a tension to it. It puts you slightly on edge. And there's this one recurring musical sort of cue that's kind of evocative of like a heartbeat. And it plays throughout the movie, especially when it leads into the more tense moments. 
with the especially with the monster with the alien and it really it's so strong it's one of those soundtracks that actually it's really interesting because it actually recedes you think of a great soundtrack right let's let's think of a john williams soundtrack like for jurassic park let's say it's a great soundtrack and it's so emblematic of the film and you think of a famous film an important film like jurassic park and you can't take that film without also mentioning the amazing score but it's upfront. it's sort of in your face it's very john williams it's very strong this soundtrack actually recedes when it needs to you don't even know it's there it's just making you feel something it's very understated and i really appreciate that sort of soundtrack as much as those brilliant john williams soundtracks because it just it works in service of the movie but it's not flashy do you know what i mean and I, I just love that. And I, I just love this soundtrack for this film. I, I never really paid attention to it before we started researching for this episode. And it's really striking. I think it's really one of the most important things in the movie. I don't know if this movie works even half as well without this amazing soundtrack. I, th- I think it's just a perfect, perfect fit. Dave, let's finally roll in to the ending of the movie. Please. Jeff Yeager wrote wrote into us. He says, hey, guys, the ultimate question about the film is child assimilated by the thing at the end of the movie or is <laughs> McReady or are both men assimilated while the thing adapts the worst human instinct to wage war on itself? Or does this question matter at all? Oh, that's pretty that's heady stuff because I feel like I mean, obvi- it's obvious that the ending is open and I don't know if John Carpenter has ever spoken about what actually happened. Uh, I, I don't know if you are aware of that. I didn't read too deeply about that particular aspect of it. He talks a little bit about it, but you and I will talk about it first, then we'll get back to him. Yeah, so I mean, my I always assumed that neither of them were infected. And I don't know. I mean, that was just always the way... I didn't know that there was really so much reading into this until I started researching for this episode that people were really... I mean, people were really going crazy with it. I always read it as that they were both... They didn't trust each other. The whole movie is about paranoia and and this distrust that everyone has with each other, even though they're like Dagan had... Uh, mentioned earlier they're all friends and they're familiar with one another they they lose all their trust because of this alien species right that's just just running through them like a a, a hot knife through butter basically <laughs> and i always looked at it as like these guys know they're done they're dead and there's no surviving this no one's going to find them for months and that's the way i read it but i don't know if you read it the same way yeah you know what i had to watch it again i didn't remember the ending and when we knew when I knew I was going to do this episode, I've watched I watched it twice. And the first time I watched it refreshed my memory of what the ending was. Now, the, you have to think about from a little kid, nine, 10 year old perspective, the ending was the least thing that was on my mind because this movie has so many set pieces in the gore and the blood and the tension and the horror like the ending. I didn't remember. And it was really nice to go in and, and refresh my memory on the ending. And I love, first of all, I love an ambiguous ending. You know, we talk about the Sopranos, right? I love that ending. We could argue about, so I, I've got 50% of you guys out there who agree with me and 50% will say you're crazy. That was the worst ending ever. But I like an amb- ambiguous ending. I like an ending that makes you discuss what could have happened. It gives life to a piece of fiction to keep discussing. I mean, look, we're doing an episode all these years later on the thing and talking about the ending and we still don't know what happened. I, I love that. I just I think it's a really thoughtful way to end something. If it, if it fits. Not that it has to be a fabricated to fit a mold. But in this case, it does fit. I see it now, Kyle, as there's something weird going on here. And here's what I'm saying. 
we didn't really get a chance to talk about the Keith David character, but he's another one of the, if there's another protagonist, in, well, he, he's a side character compared to the Kurt Russell to the McCready character, but he's a, he's one of the survivors. He's one of the four survivors. And then it gets down to two. And that's, and that's this character child. Who's a mechanic at the research station and the McCready character, the Kurt Russell character. And they're sort of, they meet, Everything else is destroyed. The base is blown up. They blow up the base in order to kill the thing, you know, bit by bit. They use Molotov cocktails and dynamite and explosives to just take everything out. And here they are outside. They're both exhausted. They meet up. McCready thought everybody else was dead. Here comes the here comes Childs. And you'll remember this, Kyle. McCready hands him. They, you know, they have a, a brief exchange, and then McCready hands child's the bottle of jb of the whiskey and child's takes it and takes a sip and the mcgreedy character does this laugh this this sort of chuckle this knowing chuckle and i don't know there's something in that chuckle now, I heard a really outlandish theory. One outlandish theory that I heard was that that bottle was filled with gasoline and that when he handed it to the child's character and the child's character couldn't identify what it was, it took a drink of it anyway and acted like it was delicious or just acted normal. That's when the Kurt Russell character knew when McReady knew that Childs was indeed infected and that that knowing laugh was like a thing of like, all right, I got you type of thing. I could also see that little knowing chuckle as just a sign of like, Jesus, like look like a simple thing of like, look at all we've been through. Look how absurd this all was. You know what I mean? Everything's destroyed. Everybody's gone. Here we are standing outside in the midst of all these explosions, not knowing if each other's infected, sharing a, a, a bottle of whiskey. Like, you know what I mean? Like almost like a laughter out of exhaustion and, just being done, just being like, Jesus Christ, that type of thing. So now I've heard John Carpenter and Kurt Russell talked about this in one of the commentaries that I listened to. And they did say that they didn't know where they came down on whether, whether the child's character, the Keith David character was infected with by the thing or not. But they never mentioned that the Kurt Russell character whether he was or wasn't infected. Now, in the sequel, which is the PlayStation 2 slash Xbox game, they it's actually a sequel, and the McReady character, I believe, I never played it, I, I believe the McReady character survives. So, and like you said earlier, John Carpenter signed off on that game. So, for me, I think the child's character is infected, and the McReady character knows it. And I don't know if the McCready character is just sort of, you know, he's just sort of throwing his hands up and just sort of acquiescing to his own death or if he plans on fighting or what is going on. But I see it that the Keith, Dave, the child's character is infected. I do see it that way. I think he is. I think he is. For me. It's, yeah, I can see that. But the, I guess my my only issue with it is it seems like such... It seems so obvious, right? Like w- this guy just suddenly waltzes back in. He's he's isolated from everyone when all the shit's going down. And then he's here. It just seems like such a heavy handed way to end the film. 
if the intention was to say like, oh, he's infected and this thing lives on. Now, mm. I know that goes back to the existential nature of what I was saying, what, like the heaviness of this film, really, when you think about it from a philosophical nature, like this really could be the big, you, this could be like ground zero of the end of humanity and the end of life as we know it, which is so heavy compared to almost every film when you really think about it. And I really like that he could have just came back in and was totally normal because it seems like so obvious that he would come back and be infected, especially with the knowing glance, like you said, and all that kind of stuff. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know who was right. Maybe that, that's kind of the, the great thing about films like this is that it's unclear if I'm right or you're right or some other fan theory is <laughs> right. right or something in between, because I, I don't know. And I, I that as a writer and someone who's now working on a piece of, you know, fiction with games and stuff like that. Not that like our, our my game's going to have like this crazy story, but you better believe like no one's going to be interpreting anything that I do other than like whatever I think it is, it is. And I just always love the restraint, I guess you can say, yeah. of a guy like John Carpenter saying like, if I were John Carpenter, I'd be like, this is what happened. This is like, like maybe I wouldn't say it immediately, but I would at some point be like, it's my movie and this is what <laughs> happened, you know? And yeah. I feel like a lot of times filmmakers and authors and stuff don't do that because they don't want to alienate anyone, but they have to have known. Like, I've never written anything where I'm like, I don't know. You know whatever you think, however you think it ends is the way it ends. Like, right. They have to like, know, right? I, I would think they yeah. have to know. I would think that's a great, great point because you think about that. You think of Steven Spielberg. You even think of a guy like David Chase with The Sopranos, which is weird to me because you think of like not wanting to alienate your audience audience but david chase is a pretty prickly dude like i can't see him caring whether he alienated the audience so it is quite mysterious because you would think you're a writer you know you could speak from a writing standpoint that you would think a writer knows that at least in his head even if it was never really fleshed out they must have some sort of idea what happens after that book is closed you know or after that or after those credits roll i i agree it's a it's a it's a mystery. It's a mystery to get into that. You know, I could see not wanting to shut the door if you want to do more later. But yeah, just not speaking to it. It's almost I don't know. It's almost like some writer's code, like a magician's code, like a magician never tells how a trick's done type of thing. I must feel like there's right. some kind of secret, unwritten, untalked about code that way, which is which is interesting, but I love the fact that we still talk about it. I heard a lot of crazy theories. I heard there's a whole breakdown of the child's character, his coat and what coats are left on and sort of the vestibule of the base, what coats are left on the hook and what one he has on and what one he has on later. And people oh, really get quite fanatical about it and and really go in depth about their theories, about, which, is, which is cool. I really respect the passion of that. I think this movie, I think this movie kind of deserves that. I think it deserves that. Yeah, no, I think I think that stuff's cool. That stuff's awesome when people get really deep into it. You, you know? know, why not? You know, who knows? You might even solve a, you might even solve a mystery. You might even yeah, rewrite I, I history. Always, ooh. <laughs> but to me, I look at it, I, I always wonder about those things because like I used to do stuff like that at IGN all the time, like get really deep into games and write these really crazy theories based on stuff. And I always wonder... If I were a filmmaker or whatever, I'd be like, I don't know the the coats on the fucking coat rack, you know, and like, no, we didn't do that on purpose. But I right. guess that's why you don't want to tell too much and you don't want to be the other way too. like I find J.K. Rowling really obnoxious as an example, <laughs> because 
who's I'm sure everyone knows the author of Harry Potter because she's like totally retconned like everything in the book where it's like, oh, Dumbledore is gay and this guy's LBGT, really? you know, whatever. And it's like, yeah. And I'm like, and I'm like, shut up. Really? You know, like just shut, just shut up. <laughs> like where you're trying to go, where you're trying to go past like what is actually in the book or what the intent was. And then you're just trying to rewrite it. Or you can do things like Harper Lee where they just can't help themselves. Yeah. And, you know, and she write and she writes the sequel that we never wanted. That's a tough one. So. So, yeah, I, I mean, you could do whatever you want to do, but I've always found that really obnoxious. So I think that the, the kind of like le, le, let it live and kind of keep things to yourself, but have your own intent, I think is probably the way you walk the balance beam most effectively because you don't alienate anyone. You kind of keep things to yourself. It's like Carly Simon with You're So Vain when oh, she right. wouldn't tell anyone who the who the song was about. Right. And then she sold that information to someone and it's like well part of it is we don't really know and that's kind of cool that you didn't say anything because I, I don't know that I would be able to help it one of the most famous songs of the 70s in that exam in that instance like you're not gonna like it's about someone that's a great point so yeah I, 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 I a little bit of restraint I don't mind that a little but, restraint is nice I think that's a perfect way to say it restraint you know mom t- used to tell me that that song was about Mick Jagger is that not true well, that's what the rumor has always been. Okay. It might be known now, but she famously sold that secret at auction for like charity or something. No like way. Like probably, yeah, probably like 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. Holy shit. Like where she told one person who it was about. Yeah. No, well, that's a great idea. That's a crazy idea, especially if it was for charity. That's interesting. And that person never was sworn to secrecy. I guess so. Yeah. I, I, it might be known now. Maybe even Carly Simon has talked about it now. But yeah, famously for decades, she wouldn't talk about. Wow. About who it was about. And it kept it could. The answer could have easily because Mick Jagger was always the one everyone thought. But it could also just be about no one. Like I always think about mom and I were talking when I was there. Can't think of the guy's name off the top of my head. But the guy who wrote all the Elton John's lyrics. OK. When you know that Elton John didn't write any of his own lyrics. Yeah. It kind of takes out all of the meaning in the songs to me. And I think it's cool that they did that where he would come up with a little melody and then this guy would write some lyrics and stuff. But the songs are really about that guy. You know, they're not about Elton John at all. Right. And and so there's like a lot of delineation you have to kind of look at as well that kind of heightens or ruins a piece of art, depending on your perspective, of course. So, yeah, that's interesting. To consider. That's interesting, my friend. That's interesting. Now, dig. I want to wrap things up, but I want to wrap things up on a little bit of a down note because one of the things that I had read that I was interested in was how this movie's reception destroyed John Carpenter's career Mm. for the better part of what seems like a decade or more. And actually, I was really surprised that I was surprised of a few things. You can read about all the stuff everyone knows or you can read about very easily like that. He was bought out of his contract to direct more movies that he was literally thrown off of a movie after this came out that he was already guaranteed to be directing and all this kind of stuff. Right. It's kind of sad because it bothers me only from this perspective. And again, in reading his filmography, John Carpenter's actually not done that much, which I was also surprised about. Like he's not done. I thought that there was going to be a bunch. Whenever I read, whenever you do these movies, I always read and I'm like, Oh, he did this and he did that. And I didn't know he did this, but with John Carpenter, I'm like, he didn't, really do anything that I didn't know about already. So I was a little surprised that like he doesn't have this really vast array of works. In fact, like him coming back and doing the 2018 Halloween was like his first directorial thing in like 20 years. Or yeah, something like that. his first so, major thing. Yeah, it's true. 
this apparently really scarred him. I don't think it was a permanent thing. But I was wondering what you think of that, because I think it's it's not unfortunate that that happened to him or that people didn't like the movie. What sucks is that people ruined him at a time when they didn't appreciate or know what this movie was all about and what and the meaning it would have later on to horror fans and to sci fi fans and all of that. Yeah. And I just kind of find it a little unjust, I guess. It's not like an intentional thing. It's not like someone in The New York Times is like, fuck John Carpenter, you know, and this and this movie sucks and we're going to get him bought out of his universal contract and all this kind of stuff with what we're saying. But at the same time, it's like, damn, that kind of sucks because people look back at this movie as being like, wow, it was a misunderstood movie and people didn't really appreciate it at the time. But John Carpenter still paid the price. Oh, he really for for people's opinion. So I was curious, like what you make of that, because I feel like that conundrum is an unfortunate one. And I was sad to kind of read that, actually. Yeah, this movie had a real visceral effect on people and they tore John Carpenter, you know, limb from limb. I mean, they went after him full pitchfork and torch style. They really, really ended up really torching his career. And he really fell from grace for many years because of it. And it's interesting that it happened that way because the movie, the movie's relatively harmless when you think about it. I mean, it's, it's campy enough that it's really interesting the effect that it had on people because for me, I'm even trying to be fair and examine it in a 1982 perspective. And it just seems like there was a lot of, you know, a lot of horror movies up to that point. You know, the 70s was filled with all kind of, I mean, the, the there was a, a genre of rape movies in the 70s. I mean, look at movies like upsetting movies like Straw Dogs and stuff like that. I mean, you had all types of movies coming through, especially in the 70s with American movies in the 70s and how dour and, and the hopeless and that whole theme of gritty realism and all that kind of stuff. So to pick on and single out this movie is a little odd. I don't know what bothered people so much about it because in the end, it is an, you know, it's a rather unpleasant movie, but it's a very well-crafted movie. And there's a lot of really artful attributes in the film and it's funny that people just couldn't see past the fact that it was a, you know, this gory sci-fi horror film because it's more than that. You know, the acting was really great. The cinematography, as we talked about, was beautiful, it had a great score, you know, an epic historical score. It had, you know, it had really a lot. And, and even the practical effects, even if it's not your taste, you know, it was really, really well done. You know, again, you know, we talk about $15 million movie, relatively large budget for the time. The fact that it was done over the course of a year, it was done carefully. It was worked on by consummate professionals at every stage. So for them to ruin it, and what movie, what movie was it that was taken from him? I forgot what it was, but it was a big one. A 1984, a, a, a to-be-released 1984 movie. I forgot who ended up doing it, and I forget what movie it was. I wish I remembered but when I read that, it, it was sort of heartbreaking. And I love that John Carpenter stood behind this film and still talks about it and talked about it as one of his favorite films. Because I think that I think the, the, the TLC really shines through. So for him to be sort of pulled apart at that point, I mean, he was relatively far into his career too. I mean, Kurt Russell was, what did he say? He was already 20 or 21 years into his film career when he did this movie. So it wasn't like these guys were new kids on the block. You know, certainly you could have, you know, the critical response could have been, well, 
it's not our cup of tea or it's not John, John Carpenter's finest work, but you know, maybe the next one, but yeah, they just, they just tore him up and made an example of him and almost to an odd degree because he seems like a pretty low key dude. It wasn't like he had these political affiliations that I know of, or, you know, was responsible for anything particularly obnoxious where people were making him a scapegoat. So I'm not really sure why that was. But it is it is really interesting and it, and it is an important part of the story to talk about. You're right about that. Yeah, it's I mean I'm looking first of all the movie you're thinking of is Firestarter. Yes. The nineteen eighty four film. Yeah, which is Steve. That was the movie Steven? he was basically he was just straight up thrown off of that movie. Wow, man. And that's right. literally because of the re- reception of the, the thing. Firestarter, it was, there's that's no right. like there's no ambiguity there at all. But I'm looking at his directed features. First of all, his first movie directed was Dark Star, which we had talked about during yes. Alien, because that's yep. like the sci-fi comedy that's supposed to be really good. But of course, if you look at everything he did, he did it like Halloween 78, The Fog in 80. Yeah. Escape from New York in 81. And the thing in 82. That's basically. Those are his big movies. Yeah. Like after that, he didn't do anything. He that, did. Like, did he do really... Christine? He did Christine, right? Oh, he did. Yeah, he did Christine, which is in 83. And Big Trouble in Little China. Which and I he would did Big little, Trouble in Little China in 86. Which right. I would agree. None of his movies. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Dick. No, I would. And I think he did Starman in between those two films, which a lot of I don't yeah, like Starman. Starman. I'm not a big Starman guy, but a lot of people hold that up as one of his best films. But yeah, after that, I after Big Trouble and and They Live, I guess it wasn't it, it was all it was all, you know, not good from there. Yeah. And I, I feel like uh, it, it's sad. It's sad because I think it had a material effect on him. And I, but I was looking his none of his films have grossed more than like $40 million at the box office. So he's wow. never been like, that's not, you're not going to make any money making $40 million at the box office, even in 1982. So, because you want to do- obviously double your, your take for marketing and all of those kinds of, of things. So yeah, I think it's really, I think it's really cool, but it, it, it's interesting how his name is really held up as this really important director and this really important film mind after kind of being, because I, like you said, like it's, it's a really, you see it in gaming too, but it really is an interesting film that it was just picked on and people were ill prepared for it. And you wonder like what the butterfly effect would have been if the movie was better received or received adequate to the time or equivalent to the time in the way it's received now. Like what would have that done for John Carpenter's career? Yeah. Uh, Who knows? You know, so I know. I hope he makes like I hope he makes a ton. You know, he's 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 hung out. I mean, he got it's not like he he got bought out of all these things. So I mean, he he's a millionaire, but I think he could have been more than that. And it's it's sad. It was I was bummed out to read about all that stuff. I was like, really? Like, yeah, it's interesting. In a, in a in a world where Ryan Johnson directs episode <laughs> eight and then is given a whole nother trilogy of Star Wars movies, John Carpenter's the gets thrown off of movies for the thing. Which it's is 5,000 times better than episode eight. It's crazy. So it's, it's crazy. It's sheer craziness. Now, I wonder how it would have went, how his John Carpenter's trajectory would have went had he had this not happened, because now he's sort of upheld and heralded as a big horror pioneer. And he's really talked about in horror circles and he's sort of distinguished in that fashion. And rightly so. I think he's really important to the the genre of horror with everything he did. But I wonder he's a visionary beyond horror though and I wonder he has a re- he's really a hard dude to put in a box. And people want to put everybody in a box, right? They want to pigeonhole people and he's a harder one to pigeonhole and I think he would have been heralded in a different light 
had all of that not happened. But instead, he was embraced by largely by the horror film community. And that's great. I think that's cool. And I think he appreciates that as well. But I think the sad part is for me, I think he's a lot more than that. And he's he's one of those dudes that you can't put in a box. And that's what's sad about it for me, because his vision is really distinctive. And I think he deserved to be known as more than that. You know, I think he really I think his contribution to film was a lot more than that. And I think I think you're seeing a thing, too, where he's a behind he's a true behind the camera guy, John Carpenter. I don't think. I don't know if he's overly socially shy or anything like that, but he's not a big shot. He doesn't want to be up front. He doesn't want to be in front of the camera. He doesn't want to talk about himself all day long. He wants to do his craft. And I think guys like that, especially guys of his generation, were sort of punished for that. You know, where you didn't have this more of a personality like a Spielberg who wasn't afraid to get in front of the camera and pr- promote his films and talk about himself and you know what I mean? That, that type of thing where he didn't become a star like a Spielberg or, you know, even, even a guy like Martin Scorsese, who, who's actually a different beast unto himself, but you know, he wasn't a star. He wasn't a household name like a Spielberg. And I think those guys were maybe, maybe punished for that. He, he would rather recede into the background and just work on his next film and pursue his craft that's how I always think of John Carpenter. You know, I think of his movies. I don't think of him. You know, I think of right. his, the, the, his art. I think of what he's done. And I really I really appreciate him. And I, I really was happy to learn more about him through this episode because I didn't know too much about him. I really just knew what he worked on. So that was kind of neat. That was kind of a neat little perk. Definitely. And, and for people that are interested, go look up a picture of what John Carpenter looks like. He's got a Grandpa Joe thing going on. It's really cool. Oh, dude, he really does. I mean, he looks like Grandpa Joe, just straight up. It's not even a, it's not even a thing. It's just, he just looks like Grandpa Joe. It's not even a thing. Oh, Charlie. <laughs> Very nice. Invasion. All right. Invasion. So that can mean only one thing. Invasion. <laughs> All right. So. Dig, let's uh, wrap up. All right. If you don't mind. You know what I wanted to? I wanted to proffer up a little thing for you, Kyle. I think you'll be delighted with this. Now, I have a theory that ties into our little nerd culture circle here that maybe comes full circle for you. Now, listen to my theory. I had to do a little research to back it up, but it actually works. Okay. Now, we talk about the, the epic, the emblematic Kurt Russell's character in this film, the McReady, RJ McReady character. Now, he wears, you'll remember, Kyle, and you guys who have seen the movie remember, he wears a cowboy hat in the film. He wears a cowboy hat on top of his Arctic hood. It's very telling. And in this movie, we didn't really talk about it, but when all of the crew and all of the actors are kind of bundled up in their Arctic gear and they're outside, especially for the exterior shots, it's hard to distinguish one character from the next. And one of the things they did for the McCready character was they gave him this cowboy hat that he wears. Now, Kyle, is it possible that Hasbro and Marvel Comics based yes. the Wild Bill character yes. on Kurt Russell's McCready? Now, also recognize that the Wild, Wild Bill flew a helicopter. He flew the Dragonfly, just like McCready is the yep. helicopter pilot for... So... Was the end? I checked the dates. Wild Bill and the Dragonfly came out in '83, a year later. 
So yep, they the were timing the is wave. right. Yeah. Right. So it's so funny you say that because I was thinking about Wild Bill the entire time. I just didn't want to bring it up because were I you realist? <laughs> that was just too much. That's awesome. That's yeah. great minds. No, great minds think alike. I, I think it's dude. The timing is of anything serendipitous because, like you said, this film's out in '82. Wild Bill comes out in '83. Maybe they were molding it in late '82, so it, this movie might. And and like you said, the he is the helicopter pilot of the Joes, so maybe could is be. my answer. I I I mean, I thought about Wild Bill throughout the movie. So I mean, I think about That's Wild so Bill a lot. Funny anyway. that you did. <laughs> but. <laughs> And you know what? Special shout out to Keith David. We talked a lot about Kurt Russell and he's awesome, but I know this was Keith David's first film, but he's a great character actor. First of all, one of my favorite voices. He has an epic voice, Keith David. His voice is amazing. But if you guys haven't seen Darren Aronofsky's Requiem for a Dream, Keith David plays a part in that. It it's a it's a it's a very brief he does a very brief turn in the movie. He's not in it a lot, but he is such a sinister character in that movie. And I, I cannot think of Keith David without thinking of Requiem for a Dream because he's so chilling in that movie. If you guys haven't seen it, first of all, Requiem for a Dream, movie that you see once. No one's watching that movie twice. DM me if you've seen Requiem for a Dream more than once. That movie is fucking <laughs> hard to watch. Oh, my God. Hard to watch. But he's so good in that. Yeah. Have you seen yeah, it, great. Kyle? Have you seen that movie? Yes. Oh, dude. I mean, what I liked about Keith David, too, is just like he was one of the recognizable faces in the movie, right? Like, yeah, a little bit of a touchstone uh, for him. And, and it was funny because I was thinking, I'm like, man, I guess Kurt Russell's getting pretty old. And he is. I was looking at more recent, you know, the last five years, pictures of him or whatever. And I'm like, but I don't know. It, it's so crazy that this film's older than me. And these guys don't look that old. And you think that they would be. No, they don't. Much older. I just, it's hard for me to like do the film or the, the film math sometimes with like how these guys look the way they do and how long they stick around and do this. And we did mention him a few times, but I, I also should in closing give a shout out to Wilford Brimley because he's just awesome. Oh my God, dude. He's, he's, a, they talk about him so much in one of the commentaries and what a character he is. And like, he's a, you know, a legit cowboy and the way he was pulling the, the guts out of that in that autopsy scene and how he was just like really relishing it, like pulling real because they, you know, they decked it out with real livers, real animal livers and all that, that kind of stuff. But I knew him, Kyle. Do you know Wilford Brimley from that show, that 80s show? I think it was on an 86 to like 88, maybe the late 80s called Our House with Shannon Doherty. Do you remember that show? Because you were a baby when that was on. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I've seen it. That's where I know him. From. I mean, later we know him from oatmeal commercials and the diabetes, the whole diabetes meme, you know, the diabetes. Yeah. Why did they let him say that over and over again? <laughs> no idea. It's like it's not diabetes. It's not diabetes. Diabetes. Well, like no one had the balls to tell Wilford Brindley. No, no one outside of like Mississippi and Alabama <laughs> says diabetes. Nobody says that, Will. Like I, that's the best part about it is that it's not just one commercial that he did. It's like multiple diabetes commercials, maybe like a whole pantheon over years of diabetes commercials. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he just kept saying it like dude, that. That's crazy. And no one is like, dude, you can't. You know how we always talk about that? We always bring up like the, the one take things we were making fun of Rick Ollie in episode one about how it seemed like every take was like one take <laughs> with him. Yeah, like of how horrible he is. 
and like I, I've mentioned about like little things like I remember seeing a movie where they say Concord, New Hampshire wrong. They say Concord oh. and like no one's on the set being like, you. that's not how they say it. Oh, you know, no. you can't say Concord. That's not the way they say it. It's Concord. <laughs> Con- and like Concord. no one on the set with Wil- Wilford Brimley had the balls to be like, Wilford, it's diabetes. That's terrible. Diabetes. I know. I don't know. I don't, yeah. He's one of those dudes. And you know what? I heard, Somebody told me. I don't know if it was in one of the commentaries or I read it somewhere that this was his first movie. Is that true? Oh, I don't know. I don't know about that. That's really interesting. How can that be possible? He came to it late. He came to it late. Maybe. I mean, it could be right. It could be. He was too busy eating cake, chocolate cake and doing whatever else he was doing to (laughs) get diabetes. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Dave, let's wrap up with our close, our dueling closing segments. I will leave it to you. All right. I have it right here, my friend. So, We are doing a little closing segment to remind you guys called Simon based on that classic electronic game that we grew up with. All you have to do with Simon is it gives you a pattern, a sequence, if you will, of lights and sounds. You follow the pattern of lights and sounds. You repeat after the machine. You get it right. It gets increasingly harder and harder as you go. Colin is going to play a little audio version of Simon where I'm going to say a sequence of words, four different words in this case, and he is going to repeat them in sequence to see if he could get all the way to number 13. Of course, this is based on our The Thing episode. So, Kyle, the choices are going to be Mac, Fuchs, Blair, and Knowles. Based on... I'm I'm not going to get very far here. Based on... Fuchs, what, what what is the fourth one? So it's Mac, McCready, Fuchs, yep. Blair, yep. that's a Wilford Brimley character, yep. and Knowles, who was the roller skating cook character. Knowles, right. Okay. Right? Okay, I got you. All right. So Mac, Fuchs, Blair, and Knowles. All right. Here we go, Kyle. It's going to be a tough one. Okay. Let's see if you can bear with me. All right. Mac. Mac. Mac, Fuchs. Mac, Fuchs. Mac, Fuchs, Blair. Mac, Fuchs, Blair. Mac Fuchs Blair Knowles. Mac Fuchs Blair Knowles. Mac Fuchs Blair Knowles Knowles. Mac Fuchs Blair Knowles Knowles. Got it. Mac Fuchs Blair Knowles Knowles Fuchs. Mac Fuchs Blair Knowles Knowles Fuchs. Very good. Mac Fuchs Blair Knowles Knowles Fuchs. Mac. <laughs> Mac Fuchs Blair Knowles Knowles Fuchs Mac. Why are you doing good? You get so much further than I would get. Mac Fuchs Blair Knowles Knowles Fuchs Mac Mac. Mac Fuchs Blair's Knowles Knowles Fuchs Mac Mac. Wow, you're doing really good. Mac Fuchs Blair Knowles Knowles Fuchs Mac Mac Blair. Mac Fuchs Blair Blair. Knolls. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I already fucked it up. You fucked no. it up. I already fucked it up. That was pretty funny. Let me see how far you got. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. You got nine. That's pretty good, man. Because it was four different choices this time. Well, you kept the way I my my sequence for this one was you did it in reverse alphabetical order, so I was able to for the first three. So that was able to oh, nice keep device. that going. Although nice I guess device. I fucked up the last time. And then Knolls twice. That was the only other one. So I, I got like five of them, but I I I mean. And the last one I fucked up, I think, the third name. So it did, obviously that device didn't work. Wow, pretty well genius with the reverse al- alphabetical order, though. I like that. I really like that. I need something to remember. I need you something got, to remember. You got it, my friend. All right, we have to close with dad jokes. 
I had a good one right Let's here, do it. but I lost it. But I'm going to open up my file here. My dad. You're always file. losing it, like like a dad. You're always losing. It's your, such your a dad place thing. Your dad jokes. It's document. really a dad thing. It really is. That's not but intentional. You're not. You're not meta enough for that. But no, I wish no, that no, you were. Wasn't no. it wasn't intentional at all, actually. All right, let's finish up with some dad jokes, Kyle. I have one here. I had one queued up for the episode. I was just, I shouldn't doubt it. I should just stick with it. Okay, here we go. Please. Kyle, why did the can crusher quit his job? I don't know. Because it was so depressing. <sighs> do, 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 do. That's rough. That's a rough one. That's that was a, a rough, rough one. one. That was a rough one for you. It's pretty late. That was a pretty 12, rough one. It's 1230 here. on the. Or, uh, that's right. You're back on the West Coast. I know I am. Yeah, you got to go rest your tired head. I do. But not before I tell you one more really bad dad joke. Please. This, this is a bad one. Even though I'm acknowledging that. What kind of magic, Carl, do cows believe in? Oh, let me think. I think you could get this one. Cows believe in. I don't know. I don't know. Kyle. Moo do. <laughs> Awful. I like that one actually a lot better than the first one. So that's not bad. <laughs> not terrible. Well, Dave, that's all we have for this episode of Knockback, our retro and nostalgia podcast. We hope everyone out there enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening and for submitting your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas. Remember, you can do just that as well as get early ad-free access to our show every week by going to patreon.com slash Stand and subscribing. We appreciate the many thousands of you that do that and Thank are so you. pleased that our show is growing and, and finding its way. We appreciate that very much. And Knockback is just starting. We're just we're just getting going. We want to do more with it, and uh, we will continue to obviously give, it, give you our weekly show, but maybe there'll even be more in store. I like it. In the future. Who knows? I like knows? it, my friend. And Kyle, I'm going to leave you with this thought. Please. Of course, it's winter, and I'd rather not spend the rest of this winter tied to this fucking couch. <laughs> <laughs> How can you not close with that line? How can you not close oh, with that it's line? Great. It's, it's, it's great. You know, it's funny, man. We were talking about how the movie wouldn't really work with modern technology, which it wouldn't, but also how much cooler that place would have been with modern technology if you had like the Internet. Oh, my and God. The ability to just download games and stream movie. You'd be fucking set. I would oh, never yeah. leave the Antarctic. They'd never go home. Ever. No. no, I would stay in Antarctica forever, actually. <laughs> so, well, we appreciate everyone's love, kindness, all the rest. We'll see you next time for more Knockback. Thanks again. Goodbye. Knockback is a product of and a registered trademark of Collins Last Stand LLC and is recorded in Santa Monica, California and the Philadelphia suburbs of Pennsylvania, USA. The show is produced by me, Colin Moriarty, and was conceived of by myself and Dagan Moriarty, who is also my co-host. You can find me on Twitter at NoTaxation and on Instagram at CLS Moriarty. Dagan is on Twitter at Dagan1973 and on Instagram at DaganLikesToDraw. Knockback is edited by Dustin Furman. Any snail mail can be sent to our P.O. Box, P.O. Box 1233, Santa Monica, California, 90406. As you know, all things Collins Last Stand, including Knockback, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon, and we are eternally grateful for your kindness, generosity, and fandom. 
Chris Adams, Carlos Algaret, Morgan Ashley, Saul Balcazar, Taylor Barkley, Martin Beck, Tyler Bello, Mark Boggio, Barrett Boswell, Spencer Brand, Miguel Brewer, Lennon Brixey, Eric R. Brown, Jason Budnick, Josh Bushing, Austin Bullock, Dylan Burns, Chris Buston, Nick C., Alex Cabrera, Patrick Carper, William O'Carroll, Brian Chan, Sean Chandler, David Chestnut, Rodney Coleman, Simon Conception, Brad Cooley, John Cordero, Gio Corsi, Philip Crone, Daniel Diamore, Colin Davenport, Knight Draft, David Ellis, Jerome Ferreira, Joe Finelli, Eric Finkenbeiner, Ruidon Fitzpatrick, Chris Galvin, Darren Gardner, Connor Gashian, Alex Gates, Michael Gates, Salem Ghanem Al Ghanem, Tyler Goodwin, Hayden Gorringe, Josh Gravelick, Miranda Grubba, Jonathan H., Eric Harden, Tyler Harris, Richard Hebert III, Kyle Hagel, Shane Hendrickson, Wyatt Henry, Robbie Hensley, Scott Hernandez, Asa Haas, Johnny Humphreys, Blake Israel, Azan Isa El Raisi, Josh Yeager, Joshua Jonathan, Paul Joyce, Greg Julefs, Anton K., Patrick Kelly, Jeremy Key, Antti Kinnanen, James Kinslow III, Ryan R. Kittredge, Mason Cadillac, Jackson Lastiqua, Don Q. Lee, Patrick Leslie, Dustin Lewis, Keith Adrian Lewis, Chad Lewis, Lou and Ray Loper, Colin Love, Scott Lovelace, Josh M., Kiet Mai, Ryan T. Mandel, Ross Maranka, Matt Martin, Sean Mason, Jordan Mouse, Zachariah McAdoo, John McCarthy, Josh McKinney, Joe McPartland, Raul Melendez, Andrew Mendoza, Chris Moore, Betty Ann Moriarty, Ryan Murdoch, Stephen Nieder, Adam Nix, Donnie Nolan, Dan Nolan, George Anthony Nunez, Jesse Owen, Jorge Palomino, Andrew Parker, Zach Parsley, Daniel Parsons, Marius S. Peterson, Gerald Pennington, Matthew Purdue, Enrique Perez, Jason Pettit, Travis Plymall, Jeff Pollard, Lawrence F. Prokop, Nathan R., Ryan Reeves, Michael Renner, Peter Reynolds, Shane Rayum, Jonathan Rice, Mark Richardson, Daniel Rivas, Petro Rose, A.G. Rowe, Jose Salinas, John Schultz, Michael Shanholtz, Toby Schutman, Joshua Smallwood, Matthew Tamer, Ahmad Tamar, Ben Thompson, Carl Tolman, Alan Tremblay, Michael Vecchio, Justin Wagaman, Oakley Waldron, Isaac Wastman, Damon Weathers, Mike Wayne, David Wright, Corey Wyatt, Tony Zuniga, Casual Misfits Gaming, Bloody Fang, Organic Produce, Homeworld Hub, Throw7, McDog18, Infinite, Boots, Mad Mock Media, Not Your Real Dad, Mubarak, Craft Heads Podcast, Richter86, Hugo's Desk, A Fortuna, Andrew, Ian, Chris, Dav9834, Gamer Filmaholic, Megadet, and Rainick. Uh, Dig, I'm gonna, I'm gonna... I'm going to stop the recording and call you back. I got to go to the bathroom. So Okay, sure, sure, sure. Go ahead. I'll call you back in five minutes and we'll resync, right? Okay. So you can just stop it on your end. Stop right. it? Okay. Okay, I will. Okay. All I right. All right, so we're almost done. I just didn't want to uh, shit my pants. Okay. <laughs> I'm glad. Actually, it would have been made for you know, some good podcasting. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, my God. It would have been great. You know when you like poop sometimes and you need like a cigarette when you're done? Oh, that's God, I, That's yes. what I feel like right now. Oh, yeah. You just need to go to bed for like 10 hours. You just okay. Gave birth. <laughs> yeah, I know. I just birthed. Uh, you know when you poop sometimes and, it, and, it, and you don't want it to end too, like where it feels really good getting it all out, so you just want to keep pooping? No? Am I the only one? All right. <laughs> oh, is it over? Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home, and then there's a version of it where you have someone help you, you watch them do it the right way, and you go, thank God I didn't try to do that myself. I have fully done things around the home that I think look good, and then a bang in the night, and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like it, I've, I've seen it all go south. I own a home, and I can tell you... I know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, you can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings. 
but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.